Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And I'm Brandon Hendrickson. Brandon Hendrickson, welcome back. We had you on last episode and we ran out of time and we just could not give up talking about the subject because it's awesome. That's awesome. Sorry. You know, like I was reflecting today on how when I like wrote the whole book review, right? Like I like put my brain to like the absolute max of what I was able to do for like four or five months. And my only hope in the entire thing was that maybe some people, this will make them like think about and consider the ideas of Kieran Egan. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, the, like the only actual like target that I had was making like the top 10 or 12 or whatever ended up being uh, cut off for that. So, you know, like the entire readership of Scott Alexander's uh, Substack would, would be able to, you know, argue about it and whatever. And when I achieved that, I'm like, okay, great. Like I've, I've done my, I've done my due diligence here. I can, I can go home. And, uh, and so last uh, episode when you guys, like I heard you guys like, taking with some of these ideas, right? And like running with them and like applying them to things. I was just so flipping stoked about that. This is everything that I worked for and more. So thank you so much for just honoring me with, uh, with, with, with this opportunity. Well, thanks for the, the, the fuel. I mean, you know, this is a really cool idea. I'd never would have come across otherwise. So, uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it, you know, I don't have any kids. I don't plan on having kids, but I have three, uh, well, I have two nieces and one nephew. And uh, I know they're not going to like whatever standard primary school, but um, anything I can do to make them make make learning more exciting for them, I'm planning on on trying to indoctrinate them with. You know, I'm I'm right now. I don't I don't know a lot of uh, you know. I guess whatever stopped at college basic algebra, um, but I plan to do my best to make math fun for them. Yeah, because uh, because math is one of those subjects where like I think it just like the fun of it gets beaten out of kids really fast. Yeah. And yeah. There, there's a huge like fear component to like, you know, looking stupid or being called stupid by your peers. Um, and that math, makes them hate the subject and they shouldn't hate it. Yeah. Math is by far the hardest one to make fun if you aren't just naturally a, a math cell. Um, as long as we're talking about math, like we can go ahead and jump right into this. You have a thing about how jokes is the perfect way to teach math class. This is the weirdest, uh, like the, the, I can point my finger at this as the one oddest sounding uh, recommendation that Kieran Egan ever gives ever in all of his books. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so like, it is the one that uh, I feel like I, I must keep my distance from the most. Uh, but I find the logic behind it really interesting, which is that, you know, uh, the role of math in the curriculum is to train in analytical thinking. And it's really hard because, uh, you know, analytical thinking past a certain kind of easy um, uh, level is this alien-ish thing for human minds. Mm-hmm. We didn't really invent it until, you know, like 500 BCE, you know, in Miletus in Turkey. Um, uh, and it does not come naturally to most people, some people, yes. Um, and uh, And so Egan says, okay, if that's the kind of thinking that we want to train, where else do we see throughout human culture, throughout human history, that kind of mental, those kinds of mental moves popping up? And he points out that one of the places that we see it is in comedy, is in humor, <laughs> um, where you have to, like, in order to make a joke actually land perfectly, you have to get every gosh darn piece of the thing to work together, right? Every joke is this little mechanism (laughs) that you like you put the gears together and you wind it up just so and then you place it in somebody's hand and poof there it goes um and so by paying this really close attention 
to jokes, not just, you know, as a critics, but then as makers of jokes or whatever, right? You in- can engage kids in that kind of analytical, systematic thinking um, that can then uh, help them develop those skills that are also useful in math. And, and I just need to say that, like, what this should not be understood as is Egan uh, is actually at pains to say that he's not saying, okay, so for the first four years, let's scrap, scrape out the math curriculum and let's put it in the funny curriculum. Nothing, nothing like that at all. Um, but I think that insofar as it can be useful to examine things really closely that are funny <laughs> um, uh, as a way of building analytical skills, I think that I have like firsthand evidence of that. One of the things that I've I've done kind of taking off of this idea is I run a once a week uh, close reading class where we take comics for the last few last year or two we've done um various volumes of Calvin and Hobbes um, Ooh, a good one it's so great right mm-hmm. uh, and we you know like the, we'll do 10 or 15 pages a week and we meet on, on zoom and the kids will say uh, okay like you know they'll pick strips that they want to read out loud and they have to perform them and uh, then we will just say okay like what makes this joke funny <laughs> <laughs> Let's get all analytical on this. And frequently, the kids have no idea what makes it funny, which is weird because they almost always find it funny. This is also a way of building vocabulary and building like a knowledge of the world, right? I don't think I would really understand what ZZ Top was as a band in the 80s if I didn't read Calvin and Hobbes. Um, <laughs> and various things of, you know, obviously philosophy, science, cosmology. Um, uh, but Beyond all of that, beyond all the content knowledge that one gets, it is a way of being stupidly, irritatingly analytical. Um, and parents have told me that, so there's maybe some selection effect here or whatever, um, but like parents have told me like, I've never been able to get my kids to do this like deep of thinking <laughs> on anything um, as they do reading Calvin and Hobbes and talking about it in class. So yeah, yeah, I, I think I think to some extent, I can say I'm pretty confident that the funnies in elementary school to boost math skills are probably good. I have two anecdotes related to that. One, one tortured analogy. The anecdote is that I think (laughs) with them, with them reading with, with them reading Calvin and Hobbes, like in in an analytical way, so they could talk about it. Having done a a couple of long form uh, book readings, you know, where it takes two years to read through a book because you're spending two hours a week discussing bits, you know, along the way that made me a better reader and a better consumer of, of, Hmm all things, I think, uh, fiction, you know, probably other stuff if I looked at it, but, uh, just being primed to engage with the content a certain way, uh, for long enough once or twice in my case, I think helped me to establish just new tools and lenses to look at stuff through. Um, and the other thing with comedy is I doubt this is where Egan's going, but I, this is, I think this analogy works where it's like, cause right now, at least in my, in my, recollection of math classes it's like all right let's let's look at this thing for two weeks all right now we're moving on over here and now this thing and none of them relate together and that to me is kind of like watching like the last 15 minutes of a you know an hour-long stand-up set and then jumping to another comedian rather than getting the whole hour uh the i mean so to to stretch the analogy i mean like i i remember once 10 years ago showing somebody the last few minutes of a comedy set that because i'd listened to the whole thing on on the radio when or i guess on pandora or something when i was driving down the highway to the point where I like I was wiping tears out of my eyes laughing while driving on the interstate. <laughs> and I was sharing the last bit with a friend, the, the part that had me in stitches. And he wasn't really laughing. He's like, oh man, that guy's got some some dark humor there. And I was like, <laughs> well, no, it's it's you, you, because you didn't, then I realized he didn't get the hour before that to realize this guy's not a psychopath. 
right? <laughs> uh, he, he, he just got the, the part that I thought was the funniest at the end. And uh, you, you really do need to build that foundation. And then, then when it all kind of comes home at the end, uh, you, it, it's, it's based on this, um, you know, this, this uh, more fundamental understanding of, of where everything is coming from. Uh, so actually, apropos that, but not related to Math or Egan, if you do want to share comedians with people, I recommend finding like their five-minute segments they've done rather than sending them your favorite bit. Um, huh. You know, fi- find their five minutes on Conan or something, because that's something they've actually calculated out to be their five minutes, not like a, a chopped, you know, bit of like, this part will be funny, right? Ah, yeah. But I, I do think that there's something there about like just taking the time to to build all the stuff you need to, again, ha- have the ending make sense, right? Have the ending land like how it's supposed to. So if, if you're huh. if you're working your way through, um, I don't know algebra. You, you'd have someone who knows more math than me. You'd have to think of a way to actually relate this to math to see if it actually lands. But tell me, tell me if I'm on anything like the right track. I'm totally fine with, with being off base here. I well, what I'm hearing from you is that is that humor to be really properly understood needs to be understood uh, in its whole context. As, 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 like small things are pieces pieces of the whole. Um, uh, which is different, right, than the p- part that I was emphasizing, which is like the doing an analytical read on a thing, because you were more like experiencing it and not being analytical about like, what is it that makes this funny? Um, but then you were moved to be more analytical about, oh, yeah, like, I guess, like, taken out of context, this person just sounds like they would try to harvest my organs for profit or something <laughs> like that. Am I, am I getting what you're saying? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Um, and and I, yeah, the, the bit about just kind of getting the, the background context to where now the end isn't just this bit of stuff that you memorized for a test or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, now I understand it. You know, um, you know, and, and give, the, given um, given the foundation that that's been built here, I can see you know how this got here in a way that makes sense. Conveyor belts is the way that I think about this. Is the way that I think about how we tend to do math classes. Um, and this is strictly speaking, not. Egan, or at least it's not unique to Egan. Um, but most kids' experience of a math class is okay, like today we're doing X and tomorrow we're doing Y, and the next day we're doing uh, H <laughs> or, or, or Psi or Omicron or something, right? Like um, these things are disjointed from one another. And uh, when my wife and I full time taught a start did the upper elementary curriculum uh, for a startup school outside of Seattle. Um, one of the things that we did was what we called them boss problems. Um, you know, just done the video game analogy of like the boss fight at the end of every level, uh, mm. where at the beginning of every lesson, we would just we would start by giving the kids some ludicrously hard problem that we made up that like took all of the things that they would learn, the concepts that they would master in the course of that one lesson, <laughs> and made it this problem so that if they can do this problem, eh, like they probably understand the lesson. <laughs> um, and uh and, and then we made it, we made the problem ridiculous. We made it over the top and whatever. Um, and we started the lesson, just every lesson, just by saying, okay, like here's the boss problem for today. <laughs> Does anyone want to take a crack at that? That would be great because it would give them it would give them some interest, right, in what they were then going to be learning about. And, you know, oftentimes halfway through the lesson, a kid would go, oh, my gosh, I I, I think I know how to do it. Okay, we'd pause everything. <laughs> um, pause everything while the kids like then go ahead and try the boss problem. And, you know, sometimes they could get it. 
And sometimes they couldn't, but now they would have another specific question, right? They would recognize, like, I don't know how to do this thing. Um, uh, we also did, well, I think we called them mega boss questions, where at the beginning of every unit, we would just make these, you know, spend some actually invest some time into making these even harder problems um, and more ridiculous problems. And we'd paste them on the wall. And um, and the kids, you know, it's been like a half an hour at the beginning of every week or month or whatever it was, looking at the problems and trying to do the problems and then writing questions down on the poster that we put up with, with each problem on it that we put up on the wall. Um, so they were kind of like getting ready <laughs> to think about these sorts of things. And then when they actually, at the end of the unit, right, if they hadn't already solved it, um, they'd come back to these and go, oh my gosh, of course, yes. And it would, it would, it's nice. amazing how, I guess in some ways this is deeply Egan. Um, it's amazing how like that sense of continuity and that sense of like callbacks, that sense of like, this is a piece that reflects on the whole, how big of a psychological, a motivational difference that will make for kids. Um, uh, I say that it, maybe it is Egan because Egan's like whole spiel is it, when it comes like to science and math is like take the techniques that storytellers have come up with that like Pixar has come up with and whatever novelists um, take those to be maybe absurdist uh, poets. I don't know. Right. Take those techniques and use them to teach everything. Uh, and, you know, this whole idea of like having callbacks, having through lines, um, this is a major element. Uh, Ines, you can speak to this and tell me if I'm wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, of how good fiction often works. And oh, yeah. something as silly as like jumping off of the con conveyor belt by making these, building these callbacks in. I gotta write a blog post about this. Uh, is, um, uh, is it can be can be magical. We we had kids who hated math, were anxious about math, who would just get stymied and, and give up whenever they had anything, uh, when they, whenever they had any kind of snag. Who by the end of like a few years, like you know, I've gotten emails from moms um, years later uh, saying like, oh, like my daughter is in you know middle school now or high school now, and she is one of the best kids in math in our class, and she really loves being challenged in math. It's like, yes, this is what I did this for. Mm. That's got to be so rewarding. I remember oh, in is. my AP physics class in high school, we rederived E equals MC squared. And like, we, we were not told at the beginning, this is what we were doing. We were just doing various experiments and, you know, running the formulas and shit on them. And like, it was in the last day or last couple days, we're just, we're a few steps away from actually getting to E equals MC squared. And you see where all of the, the formulas are trending. And then when you're like, oh my fucking God, we recreated the steps. This is amazeballs. Just because it's the most famous, famous formula. You, you feel a little That's like Einstein. Yeah. Yeah. I also and really clear, like in like the, the teacher planned this, right? Like this was like the, the oh, big yeah, plan yeah. of the teacher. Oh, it's so, and he he or she didn't like tell up where you were going ahead of time? No, it, it was one of the last oh. things we did of the year. It was so cool once you realize what, what is happening. Oh, it kind of sucks that you had to wait until AP physics in high school for that to happen, you know? Yeah. Because, like, th this could have been done with, you know, 10-year-olds and Pythagorean's theorem. I mean, specifically, this one might not have been able to because the the math equations around uh, light is are a little – they start getting more difficult, I think, but they're not that bad. No, no, th that's why I use Pythagorean theorem instead because that's just, you know, squares. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think kids, kids, you know, younger kids could follow that. When you use the word boss battle, I got I just got to, or your your boss question. I just got to mention that I think for for a lot of kids, uh, math is a lot like playing Dark Souls. And every time you try and go face <laughs> it, you get your ass stomped over and over and over. 
And then you're like, oh, I finally got this. I got it. Oh, damn it. There's a whole second phase to this fight. But then when you get done, it's this whole victory, right? Yeah. I was um, perusing your Substack, and God, I loved the Solar System blog so much. Yes. I was wondering, Steve, you're going to love this. Is Does this count as a, a boss question? At the beginning, you put up a picture of the solar system, a uh, you know, common model, and it has the words, planets orbit the sun uh, on it. And it feels like the boss question is when you say, almost every word in this picture is a lie. Like, it, it turns out the only one that isn't a lie is the word the. <laughs> and, and figuring out why it is that almost every word in that picture is a lie is is... It's true uh, why that's the case. It, it feels like a boss battle itself as you guide everyone through that. Although I'm not sure you could, I don't know, is that kind of a boss question? Because I'm not sure you could get that on your own without being walked through it. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I just like reacted like so excitedly when you mentioned that post. Right? Like, this is like, I'm not, oh, it's so good. one is not supposed to react that way toward one's own writing. <laughs> but like, I am so proud of that post. It's the second, I think it's the second lesson um, in the whole like science course, uh, online science course that I do. Um, but uh, every part, like when I taught, whenever I teach a lesson, like I teach it five times and it grows and changes every single time until by the end, like it's usually something really great. But it wasn't until like I was nine tenths of the way through teaching that particular lesson, that particular time that I actually had like the, oh my gosh, every single picture of the solar system that I've ever seen is literally facing the wrong direction. <laughs> like mm-hmm. once you understand Newton, you understand why you should like to say uh, orbiting is wrong. Orbiting is a stupid word and we should physically be conceptualizing the solar system in a different way. <laughs> I think I might be the first person to say this too. I feel very proud of this. I'm probably not, but like I, I've never read it anywhere. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, should I, should I give it away right now or should I not here? I can, I can answer the Ooh. actual like concrete question that you asked. How about, how about that? Uh, <laughs> um, is the, does that count as a boss question? Um, you know, it's interesting when I started at the very beginning of the pandemic, when I started science is weird. Um, I, I was influenced by the boss questions or boss problems, whatever, whatever I call them, um, to have some kind of like interesting question at the beginning of every science lesson. And in that very first week that I was doing it over Zoom uh, in the pandemic, I I, re- I had one lesson that didn't do that, that didn't start with a riddle. And, I, and it, it, it went terribly. <laughs> and I realized, mm. oh, this is the secret for teaching science online. It's you start like you you organize the entire lesson around one simple question that it really feels like um, the, the, the the kid really makes the kid really feel like they should be able to answer right now. Like the answer must be obvious. It must be staring them in the face. And it actually kind of has to be that. It, like it can't be something that they didn't know about before. Um, okay. And then, like you, you uh, uh, you take the entire lesson and instead of being like, "Hey, now I will give you the information." It's now I will give you clues and hints that will 
allow you to get to the answer. You together as a class will like put together the answer to this in chunks and pieces. Um, by this point of it, like we usually have three or four chapters in every lesson where they kind of like solve some other piece in it. Um, I give them like a Mad Lib style hint at the beginning where I just take out all the crucial words and so they can guess more easily, whatever. Um, and then like I dangle for them as the clues and the hints, like what Egan would call the, um, uh, the bonus al penser, the, um, the, the privileged forms of knowledge, like vivid images and stories and um, sometimes like wonky diagrams and, um, and metaphors and uh, puzzles and whatever. Um, and they have to kind of put those together and talk through them as a class to get to part of the answer. So yeah, you are totally correct in seeing a organic connection between the math boss problems and what I've done with the science career, what I'm doing with the science curriculum. I then frankly, I'd, I'd forgotten that. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no problem. Thank you for the post. I don't think we should spoil it here. Uh, this will motivate people to go and and look up the post itself. And uh, also, as as you say uh, in the post, that this is a ninety minute lesson, so it would probably take up most of the podcast. Uh, so we will provide a link to that, and anyone who wants to go can go and read it. It is absolutely fascinating and delightful to read. Like you write the same way that you talk. It is a pleasure. Your footnotes, absolutely everybody should check out the footnotes because they are also fantastic little bits and include, before I forget, a thing I wanted to ask you about. You go through the naming of the of the planets and how each further outnamed planet was named one generation earlier in the Greek gods. That, yeah. um, uh, yeah, yeah, the, and so when they finally got to Oribus, the, the final god who birthed all the other gods, uh, who was the namesake of Uranus or, or Uranus, if you prefer, uh, you said they, they ran out of the gods. The next planet discovered was named George. I swear I'm not making this up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, William Herschel and his sister, oh gosh, Anne, Mary, I can't remember, Elizabeth, some Victorian name, um, or Georgian name, I suppose. Um, they, um, they built, you know, like maybe the biggest telescope that existed ever in the history of the world. Like they had to like build a new addition to their barn to house this giant telescope. Um, he looked through the spyglass. She wrote down the numbers and he found, you know, this new dot in the night sky. Um, and, uh, and he recognized that it was a planet. And so um, the, the pattern for naming planets had long been um, uh, the father of of uh, the, the, whoever the last planet was, right? So, um, uh, Mars is Aries. Um, Aries's father is uh, Zeus in uh, Roman rite. Zeus Pater, Zeus, Zeus Pater, Jupiter. Um, so we go Mars, Jupiter. Who was Jupiter's father? Um, it was, I guess, sorry, Zeus's father is Kronos. There is actually in the Roman canon no real exact anal analog to Kronos, so they use Saturn instead. So we go Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Uh, the next planet was then found, and that was his father was Uranus in Greek, or Uranus in Latin, or you know whatever. There's a right way and a wrong way to mispronounce Latin, and I'm doing it the wrong way. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, and so then they found this new planet, and this is like the first planet that had been discovered. I can't remember in how long. Um, but the the problem was that Uranus was the first god. <laughs> they couldn't. I think they could have gone to chaos, but like chaos was specifically not a god right you can't go any farther back in the greek pantheon so he said oh this is easy i'll just name it george after <laughs> my king <laughs> king george of england um and yeah. 
and this was like so it's like Georgium Sidaris or whatever, like George's star, right? And star was a more general oh. term back then. It just meant glowy thing in the in the sky. Um, and uh, my understanding of this is that that actually did go for a while. Like it really, really was a planet named George, and uh, until like the French astronomers were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not having an English king. <laughs> the sky is for the gods, not for your your stupid mad king. We don't care if mm. you want money. You're not getting this. <laughs> we're not using this. Ah, oh, that's too bad because I mean, how much of a flex would it be to have one of your kings in the solar system forever? Just damn. Yeah, right. I mean, they went with Neptune, which you know, brother of Zeus. So you're going in a different direction. There and you're a couple yeah. uh, generations removed at that point, but then they get to do Pluto. So you at least you have like the other two brothers of Zeus that are back there. Okay. Um, before we continue, sorry, Stephen, did you want to jump in with anything? No, other than just noting that them starting, t- you know, to the tradition of naming uh, through the paternal line of of uh, of God seemed like a short side. Like they they must have assumed there wouldn't be that many planets, you know. <laughs> so it, I, I guess it worked for all the ones they could see at the time, you know. And they're like, oh, okay, we're probably good. And then uh, they had to start start getting creative. So they start with uh. George, which didn't stick, and then moved to Zeus's siblings. <laughs> <laughs> that is really interesting, actually, because like their conception of what a planet was. The blog post talks a bit about this, but like their conception of what a planet was was way more general than ours is now. Huh? Okay, I that actually might start looking into that. Thank you. <laughs> if well, I can our- actually make a meta point, um, that this like. This sort of thing where like, you know, this boring set of things that we had to learn in school. I mean, I don't think anyone's really that bored by the planets or whatever, although I used to really struggle to remember, is it Saturn first? Is it Jupiter first? You know, um, this is like one of those many, many things where this knowledge, this information, it actually comes from somewhere. And when you understand the story where it comes from, like you learn it naturally, <laughs> which is weird because it's actually much, much more information. <laughs> like, it's easier to learn the gods and the planets than it is to learn the planets. And probably, and maybe that's not exactly true, but like, it's not twice as hard to learn both of those things. Um, uh, and it's actually interesting. It's like the days of the week, right? Like, we don't teach the kids where the days of the week or the months of the year come from, or like why it's odd that like September means the seventh month but it's not. And October mm-hmm. means the eighth, but it's not November and December, right? Like they're off by what is it two? Um, there's a story there, you know, like there are gods and goddesses and like Roman emperors with really big egos behind all of this. <laughs> and we can be talking about that in the earliest grades <laughs> because anybody can flipping understand a simple story about an egomaniac. Um, but we don't because we have this absolutely asinine understanding of what human minds are like when we're young <laughs> that has not survived the test of time. Nobody, nobody is still like actually working on the assumptions that like um, uh, that people uh, made built the social studies curriculum on a hundred years ago. No, no one, no one trumpets those anymore, but we just haven't gone back and like rethought 
what are kids capable of learning in the early years and how can that build to when they get older so that they know a lot of crap and are interested in all sorts of aspects of the world. So, okay, I'm going to jump again to a different part of my notes. <laughs> I, I, I swear I'm going to get back to the earlier stuff eventually. But since you just talked about um, how, how people model young brains, uh, you wrote in one of the other posts that the matter with schooling is that schooling doesn't matter and schools don't matter because people assume brains are built to think. Yeah. Could you expound on that a little bit? What, what the heck? Aren't brains built to think? The cognitive scientist Daniel Willingham opens up his great book, Why Don't Students Like School, um, with a line something like, um, um, everyone assumes that brains are built to think, um, but contrary to this, uh, brains are not. <laughs> and, you know, he's like a cognitive psychologist at the University of Virginia. Um, he's done some of uh, some important work on cognitive biases um, and on, on rational thinking. Um, and he... Um, what he means by that, what he what he sort of in that ch opening chapter of, of his excellent book says that brains are more built to remember things rather than like, you know, dealing with a lot of random information. We have much better hard drives than we do RAM, right? It'd be one way of thinking about that. Um, but I think that we can go further in that and say that, okay, sorry, that this, this actually goes in a whole bunch of directions, right? Like what, how would you guys answer that question? Like what are brains built to do? My brain, my, my, my brain jumps to the, uh, Hansonian answer of they're, you know, they're there to convince mates that were, you know, at, at, at bottom, they're there to, to look good, to, you know, make us look good to potential mates. And, you know, so whatever that means to make us feel good about ourselves by lying to ourselves or, you know, to, to think of ways to posture in, in such a way that we, we seem more desirable. Um, ah. it, but that, that might be more of an evolutionary story than, uh, what was the question? What are they for? Or how do they, how do they think? Or uh, no, what, what are, are they, they for? for? Oh, they cool the blood. I, I forgot. Of course. obviously. I think that's a really good answer to, to look a good to others. Um, my, I was going to go back even further and say brains are built primarily to move our bodies, but that is so reductive that I think it actually misses the point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The brain is an organ that's meant to regulate a whole bunch of things in the body. Yeah. I think that, I think that's at base the truest answer and also is misses the point of uh, it. Yeah. It's not, it's not a particularly helpful answer. So we need to go to the next yeah. evolutionary step up and say, why do we have such big swellings of these parts of our nervous systems right in our heads? Yeah. Um, uh, and I hear Stephen, your answer as our brains are the purpose of our the purpose of our brains is to allow us to, and thinking is to allow us to survive and thrive in the natural environment. Well, Which, and I think specifically in the social environment, because the natural environment for humans is all other humans, basically. Yes, exactly. Right. Like, we are the animal that is weirdly built to survive in – we're like the rats of the primates, right? Like, we survive in, like, every mm -hmm. biome because the natural habitat of a human being is a small human community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, right? Like, so that's what we are really, really good at. Um, and then Egan chops that down. He's kind of building on Fodor, um, you know, some of the, uh, the module theorists, um, uh, mental, sorry, modules of mind. That's the phrase. Mental mod modality mod is a word here that I'm, I'm failing to get. Um, in the seventies and eighties, uh, who point out that brains are weirdly good at doing certain discrete tasks. 
And he combines that with anthropology um, and says, okay, so like, obviously some of those tasks, because even like the photo and the, the cognitive psychologists were ignoring like the most obvious anthropological things. Like some of them are stories. We're weirdly good storytellers. Um, we um, are uh, really good at just like making metaphors, you know, like instantaneously. In fact, young kids seem to be better. No, not just seem to be, right? There's good evidence, uh, studies that have been done um, that have actually shown that little kids are better at coming up with more metaphors <laughs> and better metaphors than college undergraduates are. I don't know if that really? study is replicated. I should look into that. But I can I can give you, if you're interested, I can um, try to rustle up the the, the fact or the, the, the study on that. Um, and, um, and, and so like these sorts of things, which then, right, like societies use to build cultures, um, which, you know, their depth are uh, a bunch of stories and things that we pass on to one another, um, rituals and uh, senses of right and wrong and whatever. Um, and, uh, and we're really good at those things. Um, so, yeah, like we should build um, schooling around these things that kids are really good at, which is not the same thing as thinking when thinking is understood in a, you know, 20th century, 21st century sort of analytic modern context. I used to teach in this hippie school and people would say things like, well, you know, like kids are so smart. Just like, look at like how babies learn language. Like that's so mentally difficult. <laughs> and, you know, like the traditional answer to that is yes, that is a superpower of babies that probably gets mostly lost when we become adults. And mm -hmm. like you are pointing to a mental module and mistaking that for people's natural analytical abilities. If we want to actually like use the tools and skills that kids have, we need to build the kinds of modern thinking that we want them to do, you know, like math, for example, on the things that they are really good at, like stories and jokes, actually, to, to do a through line back to that. Mm -hmm. The So the the various, actually, before we get to the various ways of thinking, since you brought up math again, yeah. I, one thing I was thinking as we, as we were talking earlier, but I didn't get it out, there... As much as I love everything you're talking about, jokes and all that, it, it's it sort of feels like the only way to build a muscle is to, you know, work it consistently. The only way to, like, get good at baseball is to just practice swinging a bat at a ball over and over again. It, it, isn't there still going to have to be just some level of rote memorization of, like, memorizing what the sums of the one-digit numbers are, memorizing what the products of the one-digit numbers are, just because that's so important to be able to do in your head quickly? Oh, yeah. I mean, so here, let me actually give a two-sided answer to that. So, like, my assumption is yes, absolutely. Egan's assumption was yes, absolutely. Um, uh, so, yeah, nothing that he's saying should be interpreted, nothing that I'm saying should be interpreted is, is saying ag against that. Because, my goodness, it just seems like common sense and whatever. Um, uh, there are ways of, like, Eganizing, you know, the times tables. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the um, Stephen, for your... Uh, your do we have a do we have a term in our language that includes nephews and nieces? Uh, I've heard nibblings, which I'm not oh. the biggest fan of, but it's oh. the closest I think we have. That's so cute. I like it. Uh, for your nieces and nephews, um, there is a uh, is a piece of math curriculum that is just the most one of the most brilliant things ever. Um, Multiplication by heart, and the people who made it an outfit called Math for Love. It's run by some friends of mine. Um, I'm not getting any proceeds uh, from this from this pitch. Addition uh, 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 by heart. Um, it uses um, a bunch of Egan tools um, 
and bi- and builds in spaced repetition physical flashcards in what used to be called the Lightner box um, to to train kids in, in 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 how to do just time tables and things like that and to actually understand them. Um, so there are ways of combining those together. Okay, so that was like the one side of it, like where I say like yeah, like we should definitely do that, and I and I and I, and I mean that. It is an interesting open question to me <laughs> when I think about how. The great mathematicians of the past did not actually memorize their times tables. <laughs> um, really? Inesh, ex- exactly what you're saying is true, right? Like to, to get strong at something, you have to do it again and again and again. But these were people who just like their day in, day out, like what they were working on in their own heads were math riddles. Um, and, uh, and like you just, you get good <laughs> at yeah. those things. And, I wonder if there is some sort of beautiful land that we can get to where we just have kids doing so much math that they actually don't like that the need for coming in to like, let's drill this and really practice this is becomes sort of like a secondary thing. Um, uh, but you know, that's definitely not the place to start. Yeah. When, when I was in the, the one year of the gifted talented program that I got before we moved, uh, what they did was make it a competition, basically. And I don't know if this would work for kids without a competitive streak. But like the fact that we had 100 single-digit addition problems, and we had, I think it was like five minutes to do as many of them as we possibly could. And every time I didn't get all 100 of them done, it felt like a little failure. But like as the weeks went by and I got closer and closer to 100, it just felt better each time. And huh. I don't know. That's, I, I don't know if that, that would work. I mean, it did Aren't you saying that it did? Oh, for for most people, it totally worked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, God, I'd forgotten about those. Yeah, I did something like that too. I um, I'm suddenly feeling this gut punch of nostalgia for a clearer, better time where we could tell kids <laughs> things like, "Hey, let's see if you can learn math facts quickly." Um, and you think of it now, and you're like, "Can you add seven plus two and similar problems one hundred times in five minutes?" It's like, "Are you kidding me? I could probably do it in one minute." But at the yeah. time, it was such a struggle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just point out that like competition is like you know obviously like one of the most plentiful um, common uh, cultural norms. Yeah. Um, you know, right? Just think of any kind of coming of age ceremony uh, or right um in in a in an oral um society where you just have people who are engaged in these you know oftentimes like how many wooden skewers can you stick through different parts of your body <laughs> sort of <laughs> right. competitions um what we do is at, at worst is like ridiculously tame compared to that and you know i don't think we should go back to that exactly um yeah yeah but i think the crucial thing there and i'm far from the first person to say this is that there are kids for whom competition is wonderful. There are kids for whom it destroys any desire that they will ever have <laughs> to do mm. that thing. And this is where it seems like what we we, we want to do is create diversity in the choices of education that we have, um, both at the classroom classroom level and at the school level. Um, do you guys know Michael Strong, the writer Michael Strong? I don't. This is a guy. This is a guy who, like, he has a track record of making successful alternative school at the rate with which I wipe my nose. This is someone, he, he has a sub stack. It's so good. Like, 
when I read his stuff, I'm just like, so I'm, it's scary. It's scary, like how deep and like, oh my gosh, why has no one said this before? It is. Um, and one of his greatest posts, we can put up a link uh, in in the notes. Is um, I forget the title of it, but um, it's it's arguing that look, there is exactly one thing that has ever worked throughout history to educate people, <laughs> and that is thick cultures. What's Maybe we should culture? try that. <laughs> what is a thick culture? Because right now I'm just imagining a you know fairly attractive girl. <laughs> I think I don't understand that joke, and I'm just going to walk along from that one. That's, that's, that's fine for me. That's actually fine for me. Uh, you know, like a thick culture is the sort of thing, if you imagine any like tribal people anywhere, right? Like they all are pursuing a goal together. They all have a certain set of values that they, you know, there's always diversity in every group, but like they are basically on board with, um, they're striving for something. Um, they do these, you know, Egan would say these cognitive tools or these cultural practices that like unify them, um, and, um, succeed at getting, you know, each new member, uh, born into the society to become sort of a piece of that society. Mm. Um, uh, and, uh, it, 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 uh, it gets people to care, right? Like to want to, 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 to see themselves as a, as a person who is not an atomized individual, but somebody who is like a piece of the society and is carrying it along. Um, yeah. And like in a in a thick culture, that's not his phrase. That's my phrase, or it's I don't know. Clifford Geertz is the anthropologist's phrase, or something. Um, uh, he, uh, you you have people who learn so freaking much, <laughs> and of course they have to to survive or whatever. And it's not the same kind of things that we learn in school. But like Michael Strong writes, like looking back through history. We make these people who are able to do amazing things because they have to in order to survive. <laughs> because, you know, nature thinks that you are delicious. It loves you so much. Um, and, uh, and, and we should, we should maybe try to do this thing. <laughs> we should maybe have, try to have thick cultures. But the way he writes that we make schools, um, is that, I mean, speaking particularly of public schools, although a lot of private schools, are kind of guilty of the same thing. We say, okay, like here is the geographic catchment area <laughs> around this school. We have terribly diverse. I mean, I, I, I love diversity, uh, but we have like very diverse groups of people who believe and want very different things. And they're all paying for this, um, the school. And so, and their kids have to go there. So we have to like water everything down to what <laughs> the values and the norms and the content that no one disagrees with. <laughs> and that is just a recipe for never being able to have a thick culture. <laughs> right. And so like in my mind, like we will, we will have the potential for flourishing schools everywhere when we allow for people to opt into um, whatever stupid kind of school, right? That that um that they want to have their kids into, and I emphasize a stupid thing because, of course, every group's school looks stupid to every other group, um, and obviously some people will misuse this, and it will be very bad for their kids. It just, I think, will be much better from their kids that the watered down, learning nothing, caring about nothing, having massive distraction problems and behavior problems because no one really wants to be there that much. Not that many people, maybe I just didn't say nobody, uh, uh, really cares about the place and cares about the, uh, the project that they, they are embarked in. Um, even like the bad situations will mostly be a lot better 
um, than those situations, than the situation that we have right now is. Yeah, just couldn't get much worse. The- I mean, it's always a bad thing to say, right? Like I get angry at my radical friends who just say, let's blow up the system because shrug, probably nothing worse can happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So turning that criticism on myself, I sh- that, that is the sort of sentence that should really worry me. But man, in my bones, I really feel it. No, um, I, I think I agree. Um, I Maybe not completely blow up, but just a place people, can, kids can go if they really want to, to learn literacy and numeracy. And that that's it. Like that I think would be, preferable to what we have right now and that is like you know almost nothing yeah i mean it also doesn't succeed at getting most kids literate and numerate right i mean you can define illiteracy in different ways but however you define it in the the various different ways of of defining it like most kids can't read most things when they graduate high school which is crazy all right um i wanted to go back to this thing about the kinds of understanding which is a major theme both in the post and from what I can gather in Egon's uh, writings, uh, the three major ones that people move through as they age are the mythic, romantic, and philosophic. Is that, was that correct? I think we mostly talked about this in the last episode. I just want doing a quick refresher. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, The, one of the things that you said near the end here, which I don't remember if we got to, but I think if we did, we had to kind of skip, skimp on it was that, uh, the the three modes of understanding want to destroy each other. Yeah. What, what do you what do you mean by that? Why do they want to destroy each other? What's going on here? Okay, so one of the things of Egan. Oh, and by the way, it's pronounced Egan with the emphasis on the first syllable rather than Egon, oh. which is oh. the Ghostbuster, who is yes. you know like <laughs> that's, you could, that's you what could I was going with. Two of them, you know, that's 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 a um. Uh, but, um, one of his, oh boy, I feel like this idea of his is both like the deepest genius of his, sorry, this is a fanboy speaking, like the deepest genius mm-hmm. of his ideas. And also like the thing that has hamstrung his, his fans from properly communicating his ideas. Cause it just sounds so, I don't know, mid-century intellectual or something is that, do you guys know the phrase ontology recapitulates phylogeny? Yes. That's no. the, um, okay. Go for it. Let's explain it for people yeah. who don't know. You know yeah, t- t- take a crack at it. Or do you want to? No, you go ahead, because you probably have this much more recently and well thought out than I could stumble through. So there's, there's this German biologist named Ernest Haeckel, Haeckel? I don't know, uh, lived um, during the time of Darwin. And when Darwin's book came out, it changed his life. And he said, okay, like, he's really into embryology. Also starfishes, but also embryology. Um, and he um, he recognized, I'm putting that in like half scare quotes, (laughs) that there's this weird thing that if you look at the embryos of different vertebrates at different stages in development, um, the quote unquote more advanced ones, um, they will go through these stages where they look a heck of a lot like the ones that come the, 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 their evolutionary ancestors. Oh yeah. Like human fetuses develop like a thin coat of hair that then then shed. Is that true? Oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that's true. Or at least I've, I've heard that, that that's true. Yeah. Yeah. We have gill arches, like our jaws are actually right. Like actually modified gill arches. Um, uh, some other things too. Um, so the weird thing is that like heckle is accused of, and I, I think probably guilty of actually like fudging the data where fudging the data actually means like slicing up dead embryos of animals 
to look like other animals, which is the ickiest possible thing. Um, but uh, uh, so, like, I want to put like this in kind of some some like ah, like I I I haven't done my research to figure out like how much of this is how much of these accusations are true or whatever. But there is definitely um, some element where this is true. Um, the discipline now is uh, Evo Devo, uh, environmental uh, developmental biology, um, that kind of explores this. Um, so he, anyway, Heckel came up with this idea. <laughs> Why, why are we talking about this? Heckel came up with this phrase, this like famously mouthfully phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Ontogeny means the, the development of the organism, and phylogeny means its evolutionary ancestry. So every individual, as it develops, kind of goes through like these different stages or whatever to, uh, of how its ancestors developed over long periods of time. Like so first the like, embryo looks like a fish, and then it looks like an amphibian, and then it looks like a lizard, and then it looks like a monkey, and then it starts to look like a human kind of thing, thank right? You, yeah, thank you for being explicit about that. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I, I have heard that that is mostly wrong now, like not entirely wrong. Like you said, it's based on some real things, but not nearly to the level that he tried to make it out to be. I This feels like it's one of these science things for me that falls in this weird valley of some people like there's probably something very true about it um probably mm -hmm. I, 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 this is not my field i don't have a field um so <laughs> this one is also not it um but also like its initial backers got way the heck too excited about it and went yeah. overboard with it and then it became a meme for a long time of scientists dunking on this idea but then they dunk on the strong they dunk on the strong claims but then they they mean that to discourage us from thinking about the weak claims. Um, the triune brain theory is one of these things in that same category. Left versus right brains is is something in this category for me. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, so ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Um, uh, Egan uses this phrase knowing like how packed it is uh, or how packed, how, um, how difficult or how weird it is um, and how contentious. There's the phrase. Um, Spicy. Spicy, hot taking it is. Uh, and he says, okay, so there really is some sense in which as we become educated, what that means is we go through the sort of cognitive, he doesn't use the word stages, stages of um, humanity as it developed like modern philosophic, uh, modern analytical thinking. And I think he's kind of right. I think he's definitely very right. And maybe he's even like profoundly right. Um, what was the question again? Uh, that the stages try to destroy each other. Oh, yeah, Why yeah, is yeah. that? Okay. So taking like the simplified model of, um, of, of these stages, right? And just saying, okay, like, imagine that there's mythic and there's philosophic. Uh, mythic is like the, we use stories, we use metaphors, we use jokes, we use riddles, we use puzzles, we use games. Um, uh, Binaries. Um, sorry? Binaries. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Bi uh, binaries. Um, to organize like all of our communication, all of our thinking. And then um, philosophic is like what happened in the scientific revolution? What happened in ancient Greece? What happened, um, I don't know, it's like the modern scientific, logical, rational thinking. Um, like the purpose that the people who invented modern thinking, philosophic thinking, like their their goal was to say, hey, the old way is stupid. It kills people. It gets us to all sorts of ridiculous 
beliefs that are not true. <laughs> it is like staying inside of the cave forever. We want to do away with those. Um, and, uh, and Egan points out that sure, they can say that. Like, this is exactly what Plato, you know, was doing when he said we must ban, um, the poets and the songwriters, um, from, uh, some, from society, you know, in, in my ideal philosopher king ruled republic. Um, not really republic, but, um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and like they set themselves at war with destroying those old ways. They said those old ways were, were crap. But Egan says, yeah, but you can't get to there from here. You can't get to like philosophic without first amassing tons of understanding of the world using, you know, the mythic ways of thinking, these preferred story-based ways of thinking. Um, and so uh, there's this always this tension when we educate someone and we teach them the, the, the new ways, um, the philosophic ways, where we're implicitly we may, maybe we're implicitly saying that like the old ways are crap. They're childish. They're stupid. Don't use them. They won't give you a real view of reality. But we actually need those old ways to get kids to to go where where they where they uh, where we want them to go. Mm-hmm. So are you kind of saying like um, you know once you move on to you know from whatever binaries and uh, metaphor and, and stories, moving more more towards like meaning and certainty and stuff like that that or you know, nuance, like nuance and binaries don't, you know, those, those are an, an inherent conflict, for example. Is that sort of the thing you're talking about? Hold on. That nuance and conviction or nuance and certainty are in. No, sorry. Nuance and like binary thinking like kids have. No, it's not. And that's really good. Thank you for that. No, because let me say why that's not what I'm, what, what Egan means by this. And then I'll say what's closely related to it that is. Um, uh, sometimes I see people's eyes go wide when I talk about like, oh, like the importance of binary thinking. <laughs> God, just say that out loud right now in the current sort of social, political, culture wars, right? Like it sounds like I'm saying something extraordinarily different than what I'm saying. Um, uh, uh, people are worried about binaries. Uh, they're, they, they say, oh, yeah, but like reality is like this, this spectrum of things. Um, uh, what... And, and Egan's like, yes, absolutely. But like every story has a binary in it and good stories are ones that can then complicate that binary. So even Stephen, the like having nuanced thinking that isn't between binaries, right? That like that sort of like, destroys the binary um, is something that little kids can understand. Like every good Pixar movie starts, I think we said this last time, like with a binary. And then by the end of it, like there is like this new transcendent way of like dealing with that issue. Did we talk about that last time? I we think did. we did, yeah. yeah. And Toy Story being a great Toy example. Story and all that is my is my go to example for that. Yeah. Um, uh, the what's weird is that like there's in philosophic thinking, like that's actually when you get the people who are the most cocksure of themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there's real danger, like in ideology. <clears throat> Uh, when we get to like actually develop real philosophic thinking, like kids become stupider um, for a while <laughs> before they learn to transcend, you know, they're like this one weird trick solves all problems in philosophy, all problems mm-hmm. in politics, all problems in whatever, um, if they ever do transcend that. Um, so I'd say that actually like the war against closed mindedness is something that has to be fought again in every kind of understanding. Hmm. And at the end, the I know we talked about this a lot last time, so I don't want to hit it too much. But as a quick refresher, the 
school of thought, which goes ultimately to take bits of all the different schools and and integrate them and use them all together is uh, the ironic. Uh, what Egon? No, Egan. Uh, yeah. Egan calls it the ironic uh, mode of thinking. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. Terribly um, named, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> what would you name it? I think there's a real question as to whether it is its own kind of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Egan even says, right, like exactly like where one d- draws these lines or like whether one is a splitter or a lumper, um, um, right? Like this is a choice of personal taste. Um, and uh, people can divide these up in different ways. But I think that I think in some ways it's more helpful to see it as not a kind of understanding. It is just like it is shrugging and stepping beyond these kinds of understanding and, and saying that makes us open to using all of these kinds of understanding. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is its own one in the same way that all of the other ones are. Okay. We'd need to come up with some kind of good name for that, but we don't have one yet. <laughs> Post rationality. <laughs> I mean, it was on the tip of my tongue, but I didn't want to say it yet just because that term itself is, is kind of fraught. I was really uh, excited last time that you had made that connection too. To that, yeah. do you do you want to quick do you want to talk about more about that? Um, sure. The well, I, I think I mentioned this before, but there's there's a type of post rationality which feels like it is rejecting the philosophic and saying uh, all this stuff that the rationalists thought was bad, and we need to go back to just the mythic and maybe mythic with romantic mixed in. And they consider themselves post-rationalists. And like some of them were never even rationalists to begin with. Uh, but then there's a different kind of post-rationality, which to me feels like just the final stage of rationality, which is why I'm not sure if it should be called post or not, where it it um, says the, the initial stage of rationality, the hardcore analytic um, finding out all these things about the world that is that is still good and there's a lot of in value there but it's not everything and for a number of years we made it our everything and we learned and grew a lot during that but we have to remember that there's a whole lot of other stuff that we temporarily left behind in the mythic and romantic stuff which is just as important especially for living as a human and we need to reintegrate those as well together with the things that we learned in in the rationality early rationality phase of our lives and like that is what I would consider post-rationalism in the same way that like a post-grad is someone who has graduated and is doing more things with that. Whereas I think a lot of the people who, at least some of the people who use the term post-rationalist mean it more in the way of the postmodern, where they have rejected the rationalist and moved to something different. And I don't think, that's why I don't necessarily like the term, because it means two different things, which in my opinion yeah. are radically different ways of of dealing with the rationality thing once you have absorbed uh, everything that you can from it. Yeah, those Whether are two, it's an integration or a rejection. Yeah, th- those are two uh, very like heavy distinctions. And you're right, they, they're both reasonably called post-rationality. That's uh, a branding problem, I think. Isn't the same problem... Don't we have the same problem with the word ration, rationalism or rationality? Where like it, it really like means to a lot of people, pe- you know, people who are wake up every morning and vow to be more like Spock than they were the day before. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, also like kind of the opposite of that, right? Julia Galef pointing out that Spock is never right. Spock is almost never right mm-hmm. when he gives the odds on something. And um, uh, Spock is not actually being rational. He's being this, you know, um, 
um, Gene Roddenberry's sort of hilarious commentary on peep on nerds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think the major thing is that all rationalists first go through their Spock phase at the beginning, like maybe the first year, maybe only the first few months for some, maybe the first several years for others. But there is that point where you are like discovering the wonder and the beauty of being analytical and being right in these various ways that you can be right by applying numbers that you didn't know of before. And you, so you are in that phase for a while, but like eventually you move on past that and then integrate what you learned there. And a lot of people like to make fun of that Spock phase, but like, it's, Hmm. it's a necessary thing to go through just like the mythic binary, you know, worshiping of heroes phase is important to go through. You can't get onto the next before going through that first one. Huh? Huh? I think there's probably something to that. Uh, that, that. That definitely, at a quick glance of my autobiography, uh, that that scans. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think there's a point in everybody's life where their emotions just feel like the worst things in the world. They are harming them. You don't know what to deal with them, and a great way to put that on hold for a while is to just suppress them for a bit. And like, these emotions are stupid. They're ruining my life. If I can ignore them and not be motivated by them as much, my life will be better. And you can do that for a while and learn to to survive the onslaught of the emotions and then later on start integrating the emotions and being informed by them without being overwhelmed by them. And I think specifically, I don't know about women, but I think specifically for young men who first get into the teenagehood when just that mass tidal wave of testosterone hits you and everything seems so intense. I think that kind of is important just to deal with that because otherwise you go around being a crazy man. What yeah. the heck? Sorry. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I um, teach um, adolescent young women also, and I'll, I'll say that there is some element of something like that uh, for them as well. Okay. I, I'm not surprised at all. I've yeah. heard teenagehood is terrible for everybody. Puber- Puberty is hard. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think one is well advised at the, at the onset to never go full Spock, you know? Huh. Uh, I would agree. I think a lot of rationalists do. I think I did for at least a little while. I, I think I probably wanted to, but was never smart enough to. So, uh, <laughs> or, or n- never, never smart enough to pretend to be full Spock. You know, yeah. um, it. Although it, that that I my memory's hazy, but yeah, I mean, I how did this relate to what we were talking about? I'm, I I lost the thread here for a second. Well, let me let me bounce off of this then. Um, I I recognize that I feel like I may have had a different induction to the rationalist community because. I came into it what feels like rather late when I think I was more formed. Mm-hmm. And my intro was just Slate Star Codex and now Astro Codex 10 mm. rather than any actual in-person meetup group, right? Like I go to meetup groups now, um, but um, but I didn't then. Um, w- if you guys had to like paint like a sketch of – I don't think one paints those, but paint a sketch of uh, what an, arch- an archetype of a person encountering the rationalist community, like what stages they go through. When do they, <clears throat> pardon me, recovering from a flu, when do they find out about it? When do they, like, how do they react to it? Like, what what does that look like? Boy, um, I honestly, I would think it depends on what age they run into them. I I ran into the rationalist community right as it was forming, but at that point, I was already in my mid-20s. Um, so I I had already gone through my Spock phase, and I was still like in it, but I was at the very tail end of it, which kind of feels like perfect. It feels like Eliezer's early writings were absolutely 
we are we are the super rational Spocky types, but we are now starting to understand that that's not enough. And so it's the early writings seem very much to fit into that Spock stereotype, but appealing to that person because they already exist and starting to move out of that. Like you have to first appeal to the Spock to take them to the next stage. Whereas I think Slate Star Codex is already moved into the postgraduate, post-rationalist phase where wow. everyone is, has assumed to already been moved past that stage by the time they're reading Slate Star Codex. That's a fair point. I think also just because Slate Star Codex or a whatever a ACX doesn't have uh, um, doesn't have the sequences. You know, it, it assumes a baseline. It's not it's out there to mm-hmm. teach you. Here's the tools. It's like, all right, you know, I'm assuming y'all can follow this. Let's let's go ahead and and work through this, right? Yeah. It yeah, it doesn't have two years worth of blog posts of foundation. But I think nowadays, someone who is in their mid-teens who runs into Eliezer's writings for the first time is probably someone who is. Uh, moving into the Spock phase or just near the early mid parts of it. And they will find a lot to relate to in that because it is, you know, aimed for specifically those sorts of people. And so you will still get a lot of people who in their first phase as a rationalist are going to be in that Spock phase. And I think that's fine. It's good to have something to that appeals to people like that and that they can really see themselves in. And like, it literally helps them be better at that and to start guiding them into the next stage. Gosh, that feels so condescending to say it from, from this point of view like oh yes you are you're slowly coming up and becoming a better person and i, I don't want to imply that i I, are- I took it i didn't take it condescendingly at all and i think it matches up with my my uh my timeline rather well um because yeah. yeah i was trying to think of you know roughly my spockiest years are probably you know after high school or something maybe late high school mm-hmm. and then i came across this stuff in my whatever as 19 or 20 or 21 um and that was right around on time and you're right if i found it much earlier, I probably wouldn't have found it that interesting, and I have no idea who I'd have been if I found it five years later. Um, but no, I, I don't think it's condescending at all. I mean, unless somebody's going to stand there and staunchly defend the like, no, let, let's let's be more Spockian. But I mean, even just looking at like what trends on less wrong now, like none of it is that direction. You know, a lot of it is like yeah. really compelling personal anecdotes and uh, you know um, how the whatever I learned this lesson from this, and this might be generalizable kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's hardly like, you know, here's another cognitive bias, you know, hmm. it, it might draw from those, but it's not like, it's not merely like an instructive thing that gives you another tool in your Spockian, uh, toolbox to feel more superior to other people. Right. That's yeah. fascinating. Thank you. No, that it helps me understand why, when I've heard criticism of the community, <clears throat> it seems to describe parts of the community that I've never experienced because maybe I missed, the main part of the community. I missed the party in the late 2000 aughts <laughs> um, yeah. and just came in for the post-rationality part of it. But the good kind, not the bad kind. To, to, right. be, to be fair, I've, or to be, you know, just to make sure, I, I've also heard criticisms of the community that seem not to apply to anyone at any time. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, I, I wouldn't, you know, j- just, just to put that like in what? your... What was that? Like what? Uh, I, I've heard probably most egregiously obviously false is that the rationalist community is transphobic, uh, oh, huh. which uh, I, I've heard defended staunchly or rather argued staunchly. And I, I, they didn't seem moved at all by the fact that rationalists have a way above average base rate of trans people. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like if that, if that wouldn't falsify the claim, then nothing possibly could. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that sort of thing, I guess. Yeah. I, have a question, not a question, a thing I wish to explore about the various schools of thought 
uh, since we are talking about those. Um, there is this really fascinating, I want to call it assertion, but maybe observation in his works. Uh, God, I, I, I'm Egan. so stuck on the Ghostbusters thing because I watched so much of it. <laughs> Egan, uh, that the the three basic that um, kinds of understanding, mythic, romantic, and philosophic, are tied directly to how humans process uh, words. That the mythic is born. Well, let's take them one at a time. That the mythic is born of the time when humans discover speech, basically. The ability to talk with other humans and pool their brains and start um, commenting on things <laughs> together. The, and the first thing we do is start exaggerating and making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> then I fought this god the size of a mountain. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that it seems to open up whole new vistas of the world, which now we need new ways of understanding the world to to wrestle with once we can talk to other humans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Yuval Harari talks about this in Sapiens, mm-hmm. um, of how, you know, we are the species that tell stories. We are the species that can lie. Can then We can make up all sorts of things that aren't true, right? Um, Stephen, to your point. Um, we all know that real gods are not the size of mountains. Um but uh, we, <clears throat> I thought that was funny. It was. Uh, I just didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> I was. I was going to say, yeah, they're they're about they're about six seven six eight, right? <laughs> they're taller than normal people. We can be clear about this, right? We we, we don't need to exaggerate beyond that. That's just silly. Yeah. Um, there's but, tall, um, the tallest dude you've met plus two inches. There you go. <laughs> that seems scary, right? There's a lot of extra leverage and a punch that somebody that big could, could have. Just like the oh, biggest yeah. fish I've ever caught is just this much bigger than the biggest fish you've ever caught. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, uh, maybe this is like too obvious a point, but right, like before we had the ability to speak, we still had seemingly, seemingly had complex I don't know, complex societies. We had societies, right? We think that Australopithecus had social groups that were more complicated than your average chimpanzees, but not as much as your average hunter-gatherer nows. Uh, hunter-gatherers now. Um, but, um, and the ability to speak allowed information to be stored inside of the community. Um, this is, um, I know that uh, Ines, had wanted to talk about uh, the work of uh, Joe Henrik. Um and yes. like this is the guy who says like we are the cultural species we survive not because we are so individually clever ourselves there's actually an argument to be made that neanderthals were more individually clever um but because we have these um mental modules that allow us to tap into the deep history of our ancestors and to use their information and then we get to become this you know multi-tentacled beast where you know when one person in a tribe fights another person you actually have like the tribes fighting each other right it's like everything that this person can tap has been able to tap into from their tribe <laughs> uh versus everything in the other person's tribe you know modulated by like how strong one person is or whatever. Um, but uh, to really see human history for what it's worth, you have to understand that we are not individuals, right? Height, J- Jonathan Height, right, says famously, we're 90% ape and 10% bee, I think is ants, I forget, right? We are these kind of hive creatures. And so verbal speaking allows us to do that. And certain kinds of understanding really are shaped 
by these special modules, these tools, stories, metaphors, binaries, etc., um, that we use. What was the question again? I should, I should, I should, I should start writing the questions down. Is what I should start doing. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, it wasn't much of a question. It was much more of a comment that, like, unlocking the ability to have this collective memory through the speech with other humans is. Uh, th- that's why we need the mythic form of thinking of stories and metaphors and binaries because it helps that stick and become um, become yeah. transmitted more correctly yeah. from person to person. Well, and one interesting thing about it is that every kind of under every mode of communication, right? I'm uh, who said this, um, Marshall McLuhan, um, has its own flavor. Mm-hmm. Speech has this like warm. It sounds stupid, maybe to say it's flavor, but like speech is warm. Speech is easy to communicate emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Speech is easy to communicate emotion, right? What? Obviously, there's the two totally different meanings that are. Um, recognizing right now that that was an ungram- ungrammatical sentence um but uh <laughs> hey that's a romantic concern sir <laughs> uh nerd um <laughs> but um there's you know there's so much information that is transmitted just through like how one's body is and how one's tone is with all of that um there's beat uh there's there's rhythm there's um there's rhyme there's all of these things that are not obvious when something is in print um print not even necessarily print, but like handwriting too, right? Any kind of writing, like has its own advantages. Um, uh, most obviously, it can last forever. Yeah. <laughs> or it can last for hundreds or thousands of years. Um, and, and it can transmit information when there's no other human around to transmit it. If you imagine, you know, like if you invert the whole story and you don't imagine that it's humans who are having ideas who are talking to other humans, but it's ideas who are jumping through um, human brains to get out into the world and back into other human brains again, right? Um, mm-hmm. A human brain is a natural habitat of every idea. Um, then, like, writing is the greatest thing that has ever happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah writing was a great uh, fitness jump for memetics, right? For yeah. memetic transmission. Oh, I, great. The, the meat suit that I'm being, you know, carried around, it doesn't have to survive and talk this through. It can just write it down. And I'll, get all, I'll get all over the place. I've heard it said, and I, I strongly believe this, is that writing uh, is the first thing that made humans into cyborgs. That yeah. once we have yeah. writing, we are now not just ourselves. We are ourselves plus our tools. Because, like, like as you said, not only does it free up working memory, but the ob- the ideas that we have become objects of contemplation in their own right. Yeah, I mean, there's your extra RAM, right? We make a big deal yeah. about how the long term memory cyborg add on effect that writing gives us. Um, but I think less appreciated is the working memory add on. Right, like my brain can hold, you know, three or four different bits of information if those studies are to be believed, and they are. Um, but if I like write things down, then I can just stare at the page, and now I have my three or four, you know, bits of working memory are now cleared, and I can consider at almost the same time all of the things that are on the piece of paper that's right in front of me, and I can combine them together in new ways. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why, you know, just having a common, a flipping commonplace book is such a useful tool. Or when you sit down to work on a hard project that you feel stressed about, just like spending, this is very David Allen and getting things done, right? Like just spending five minutes and vomiting out all of the things that are in your mind at that moment um, uh, is so wonderful. Because now you're not carrying it, right? Your mind is for having ideas, not for holding them, I think is, is David Allen's way <laughs> of, That's of a nice putting way to put it. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you, but you, but, the, but the downside is that you, there's no tone in, in in physical writing. I mean, you can use boldface or italics, or and these are actually like tools that we've norms that we've cobbled together, right? Like if I underline something, if I put asterisks around it, right? Like then it it should is meant to be interpreted as this tone. But like my goodness, like italics can mean like a thousand different things. Yeah. <laughs> um, subtle differences in how I say a sentence, right? Can mean uh, can can be like can communicate something as broad as things as different as thank you so much for saying this, or you're an idiot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's like, if you say I have lost confidence in your willingness to speak candidly to the board, like in one context, that means very little in corporate speak. That means you just shot someone in the face. (laughs) 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 Yeah. You, you, when you, you said that you, you think that I write the way that I talk. I've heard that yes. a couple times before, so I believe it. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? <laughs> um, you are you convey right, enthusiasm, so I, but you convey yeah, enthusiasm, I, you, you know, you'll, I, you'll have to lean on our writer to explain exactly how you're doing that. <laughs> well, so I, I know this is not literally true that you just write what you are thinking because there's no way someone just writing what they're thinking could write anything this good. Um, I had gosh, when I wrote um the. Um, the real fanfic is the friends we found along the way, or um, the it, it's it's a so much more fun way of writing. But there is a style of writing that is the default, where it is a bit reserved, and you don't speak directly to the listener. You are putting thoughts forward with the understanding that someday some impartial observer will observe them. Whereas if you are trying to take a more, um, I. I I, ca- I have to call it fanficy because I first saw it and I see it the most in fanfic style writings. Uh, you are engaging with the reader directly as if they are a peer and you are having yeah. fun with them and you expect them to understand some of your references and you're happy to joke around. And that is uh, that that takes a different type of work. And that is the thing you're doing where it feels much more relatable, where you're a warm human who is having fun and you are treating me also as someone you personally know and expect to relate to you on a deeper level than just an impartial impartial observer who found this text. I'd also add that there's the component of um, it it feels like a conversation when you pause to do Q and A's and it's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I bet you're thinking of this. And it's like, Oh, I was thinking that. Thank you for addressing this. And Mm -hmm. I find those really helpful. That's something that I actually, Egan never says that, um, but I got it from Egan. Um, that, that, right. Like if my, if it's true that minds are really built for dialogue, I mean, if they're, if they're really built for speech, then they're built for dialogue because nobody ever gives a 11 hour long speech. <laughs> that they expect Unless you're Ayn Rand. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, you know, started a, a, a new book about the Renaissance and Reformation yesterday, and I'm excited about it. But the author, I, I, I like his points, and he's challenging me in a bunch of my assumptions about the about the early modern period. But, uh, you know, he's not he's not the greatest writer. I don't mean that to mean that he's crap, but he's not the greatest writer, and it shows. And um, and it's just a bunch of like here is this sort of like information, and it's kind of dead, and you have to like work to really kind of get excited about it. And uh, mm-hmm. anyway, it's, it's an 11, and it's 11 hours long uh, is where I was thinking about with that. But like, if we're built for speech, then we're built for dialogue, which means that maybe even more than storytelling, <laughs> what like good writing of a certain sort, because you, know, you can't do this and everything, but like, no, that a cheap hack, 
<laughs> to use when trying to get people to understand something is to to do it in if not straight up dialogue the entire time, right? Like Scott Alexander is so good at that. I'm not. Um, but to have occasional, like, you know, interlocutors, uh, you know, is the, is the trick that I use with, with the, my, my sub stack, my imaginary interlocutor who just jumps in and asks typically quasi rude questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then directly responding to those is just, it's cheap. It's cheap and it works and it's easy. And I recommend that everybody does it. Yeah. Well, I think I, I've definitely heard that advice um, when communicating, uh, like, you know, people, when, when science was communicated to people writing their own books rather than publishing to journals, uh, you know, a good example would be like Darwin saying, uh, you know, how does evolution explain the evolution of an eye, right? Yeah. Um, or the, the development of an eye over time. And if you stop reading there, it sounds like he's giving up. But if, uh, if you don't, yeah. he goes on to explain, oh, well, it would, you know, maybe, maybe kind of like this. And, you know, good um, persuasive writing involves, and maybe just, and may, maybe this is the jump, actually, it's not just persuasive writing, good informa- informative writing involves anticipating where people might be disagreeing with where you are, so yeah. that you can keep going. Because if they, if they jump off, you know, a third of the way through, because you're not addressing their concerns, then, then they're not going to finish, right? But if you say, ah, you know, I think I, I, I was where you are, let me, let me explain why yeah. I'm not stuck on that point. And then, then they can keep going, right? Do you guys know where that chapter came from in Origin of Species? No. There is one of my favorite scientists. Um, he's a guy named St. George. No, wait. Yeah, St. George. No, I'm getting the I'm getting the order of his like 12 names wrong. St. George Jackson Myvert. Contemporary of Darwin. Uh, he, whew, he was an early convert to Darwinism, and then he had a change of heart and converted against it, um, and converted, I, I maybe kind of reconverted to the traditionalist Catholicism of his youth. Um, uh, wrote a bunch of really interesting controversial theology, and at the end of his days was denied being buried, uh, the ability to be buried in a uh, Catholic seminary, uh, cemetery. Um, also, probably the seminaries wouldn't take him. Um, but <laughs> he uh, challenged Darwin and said, look, what about the eye? <laughs> what about feathers? Mm. What about these ridiculously complex features that um, seem – like, what good is it to have half of a feather? What good is it to have half of an eye? <laughs> uh, and uh, Darwin did not have that um, that chapter in the first or maybe even the second edition of On the Origin. Um, oh. And it was through these letters with um, with Myvert that he was challenged on this. And Myvert was a really helpful adversary <laughs> um, who really you know, like, tried to crucify Darwin on on not being able to explain this. And then Darwin had to come up with some explanations and his explanations are actually really good <laughs> explanations. It turns out. And, you know, obviously it's like when young earth creationists will, uh, will cite you know, like the first lines of that chapter, you know, they'll, they'll set the part that says like, Oh, like if I cannot explain the eye, then my idea has a terrible, terrible problem. Um, and they ignore the fact that that is the first paragraph of his chapter. <laughs> but it goes to the the the, the timeless art of quote mining yeah Yeah. i um so you said yeah 
You said in one of your blog posts that the secret sauce of the scientific revolution were new rules for arguing that made it possible to stay in conversation with one's frenemies forever. And just before yeah. that, you had argued that like the scientific method is not a new thing and not what created the enlightenment because people knew about like observing the world and then doing some things to it to see what changes for yeah. hundreds, if not thousands of years before that. So what what is the thing that made the scientific revolution possible, these new rules for arguing? Well, so okay, we need to be clear as to what we mean by the scientific revolution, because um, uh, I've been reading a lot of books on the scientific method and the history of the scientific method. And um, one of them, Carlo Rovelli's book on Anaximander, uh, just so flipping amazing. You know, like one of those books, like you read it and you're like, yeah, you get it from the library. You're like, yeah, I think this will be good. Like, uh, maybe I should buy this. And then you buy it and you start at the beginning and you actually like, start to read it through. And you're like, oh my God, this is Oh wow! This like takes everything that I knew, but like it, like it elevates it to eleven. It's so clear, and now I understand everything. And then like you go back through it, and you begin to like summarize like every section in a sentence at the top of the page. You're like, oh my gosh! Like I can actually ape this. This is gonna change my life. And then you realize that you forgot to finish the book in the first place, and you have like three more <laughs> chapters. It's like just like yes, Merry Christmas, Carlo Rovelli. Mm-hmm. I. Um, this might be the first time that that's actually ever, actually ever happened to me. This is probably not a universal human experience. Um, but he points out in this book that uh, that like you can say that like science begins at um, uh, at Newton, and that's a, that's a significant sentence that means something. You could say it begins at Galileo, um, uh, and that's actually like the, there's another bookend you could have there. If, if you define science as a, as a slightly different thing, you could say that it begins at like Anaximander in ancient Greece. Um, you could say that it begins with like the first hominids you know, who had like a frontal lobe or something like that, right? Um, mm. So when you say this, Ineesh, do you mean like, you're asking the question, how did we get like the quote unquote scientific revolution, like the capital S, capital R scientific revolution that happened in the 16, 1700s? The quote that I'm looking at has the capital S and the capital R. So let's go with yes. We'll take it. Okay. So um, like people like, you know, we'll, we'll take a piss on alchemy, but those alchemists- <laughs> Like they actually understood so many details. Was that about a joke? Because because world... urine was a huge thing in alchemy. <laughs> <laughs> and if you well believe played. that, I have some phosphorus to sell you. Um, <laughs> I uh, um, the. Um, uh, see, then, then there's the problem where I, I say a, I say a joke, and thank you for laughing that time. That was very nice, but I'm like that was a bad joke, and now I'm just very distracted by that. Uh, no, not intended to be a uh, a joke there. Um, although you had mentioned one of you had mentioned earlier about um, uh, either Uranus or Uranus, the beautiful thing with those pronunciations is that they're both potty humor, or at least the potential for potty humor is pregnant in both of those. <laughs> and it's even better because the planet itself probably smells like pee. So <laughs> um, the details that you learn when you're putting together a lesson, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but um, capital S, capital R, scientific revolution, the alchemists, like the, it's not like people woke up in the 1600s and said, Hey, we should, you know, learn about the natural world. Like they had been, they'd been working at it for thousands of years. They had been coming up with all of these different theories. The theories, you know, were mostly bunk. Um, and, um, but they knew their details so well and they had their lab methods like so well done. All those ended up being necessary. Um, but the problem with the ways that they were doing science is, um, they, well, there's a couple of problems and everything that I'm getting right now is a terrible summation of uh, Michael Strevin's book, The Knowledge Machine, how, 
science became modern or how we got to modern science or subtitled something like that. Um, and, uh, and he says that, well, one, like they were keeping their stuff secret, right? Like if you discovered some step toward the philosopher's stone, you didn't want your enemies to know how to make the philosopher's stone or get that much closer to making it or whatever. That's a bad example. Um, but, um, but another piece of it is that they didn't have, because they were working on different paradigms, they didn't have a way of challenging one another. Because, you know, a challenge in one paradigm was not, would, wouldn't make any sense in another paradigm. Um, this is the problem that happened in ancient Greece between like the, the atomists and the, um, the anti-atomists. I forget the phrase for that. Um, uh, and between the Aristotelians and the um, Epicureans and the Stoics and whatever. They didn't have a way of challenging one another. And so in the 1600s, um, in, the, in the definitely autistic person of Isaac Newton, <laughs> you have this, obviously this brilliant mind who is connecting the cosmos together, but he's doing it through math. And when asked, okay, like, what is this gravity that you have invented? <laughs> What is actually causing these these patterns that you have titled gravity? He says, I do not feign hypotheses. He says, maybe it's some sort of mechanical, maybe some sort of mechanism. Maybe it is um, uh, ghosts. Maybe it is like something like occultic. I think he actually uses like whatever the word occultic is in Latin. Um, I might be wrong about that and probably has different connotations, but maybe it's something like spooky like that. Maybe it's just God. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not interested in the depths of things. I'm just interested in explaining explaining the patterns that we see around us and being able to predict what will happen if we see, you know, this certain confluence of events. Uh, whether we make those in a lab or whether, you know, we just like come across some sort of natural experiment. Um, I'm just interested in the numbers, right? I'm interested in measuring these things and arguing through math. And Newton like had his own personal wonky bizarre beliefs right this is a person who spent more than half of his time on a combination of trying to literally create the philosopher's stone and trying to predict um exactly when the return of christ will be <laughs> got really into the details of um solomon's the building specifications for solomon's temple um because uh, he thought that that had you know messianic eschatological importance um uh but uh, so he had his wonky beliefs but he walled them off from his public science communication. Um, and so it was that kind of, hey, now we have a way of fighting each other, of challenging each other through predictions, through measurable predictions or predictions of measurable quantities that allowed the uh, science to actually become, to enter into its full philosophic um, uh, uh, phase. Uh, Egan would probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, no, I, I love I love that you brought it back to that because I was I was gonna yeah tie it back to the kinds of understanding and the um technologies for communication because like the mythic as was spawned from the ability from people to talk to each other, then the romantic came from you said the uh Greek miracle is 
explained in large part by the Greeks were the first people who take the tool of writing and actually just exploit it to its fullest extent and get this insane explosion of knowledge and and new ways of being a human and being a thinking being, which is captured in the romantic kind of understanding. And then the philosophic is specifically when uh, this more analytical math-based uh, type of writing is introduced and that creates another whole new way for people to think. And so these three types of thinking are the, the recapitulation of the three ways that humans have discovered to communicate with each other through t- using technology. You know, assuming we consider really well speech said. to be a technology. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was really well said. And um, let me, I, okay. So I'm kind of excited about this because I have a bone to pick with the two of you. I was listening mm. to one of your podcasts from, I don't know, like two years ago, uh, a couple of days ago. I'm like, wait, I, no, I think that's a terrible <laughs> thing to say, but it, it relates to this. It, re- it relates specifically to where philosophic thinking came from and how we can cultivate it in ourselves and in kids today. Um, okay. Um, uh, but let me um, start by um, dissing something that Egan said, um, which is uh, which which I was um, uh, in what you were just saying, which is I was representing what Egan said in that. Um, so Carlo Ravelli writes this book this year on uh, Anaximander and um, talks about specifically not even like ancient Greece, but like this specific island called Miletus, which is off the coast of Turkey, which is part of the Greek world at the time. Um, that this is where uh, Thales comes from. This is where his student Anaximander comes from. This is where Anaximander is probably probable student Pythagoras uh, definitely comes from, um, or somewhere really close to that. I suddenly realized that I'm not totally clear that they're all from exactly that one island, but whatever, uh, my close area. Um, Egan focuses on the writing technology, and I think that that actually misses the bigger picture of what's going on, although I, I do think he's totally right that the writing technology is, is, exa- is, is very, very important. Um, but like uh, Carlo Ravelli asks, why... Um, Greece, but then also like why Asia Minor, these islands, this part of, of Turkey, and then why specifically this one random island of Miletus? Um, and uh, oh gosh, now I'm even thinking like, wait, am I positive it's an island? I was just looking at this on a, on, on a map a couple of days ago on Google Maps. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Okay, this this one area called Miletus, and he points out it was an that, island of knowledge. Thank you so much. Yes, let's use metaphor. That. Uh, <laughs> quite the high and lofty crags. Uh, it's tectonic plates. Bill. Okay, uh, maybe I'm pushing that too far. Um, uh, he says, "Look, like this is the part of the world that is most in communication with." Like the most number of other parts of the world, <laughs> um, mm. they had had like a eight hundred years, six hundred, four hundred years earlier. Like they'd had this like massive ma- uh, palace-based civilization. It had mysteriously crashed and burned. They were in this dark ages for like, at least four hundred years, um, and then they began to pick themselves up. But they were a trading society. They were a trading. So they were a rich city of, of, of traders. Um, they did not have uh, a king anymore, um, so they had to be this like quasi-democratic. Democratic here means like being run by the rich merchant families, probably. Right, not really democratic exactly, but like it wasn't like a kingly court, a royal court that was going on, um, which is like how um, like Assyrian knowledge and Babylonian knowledge and Sumerian knowledge and Egyptian knowledge like, that was basically just like the court knowledge, like everybody else was just toiling in the fields or whatever, the the salt mines. Um, but like in this city, you had a whole bunch of people just kind of like working together 
to run the city and to chart the city's own destiny. They traded with Egypt. They traded with um, like Germanic cities in the north side of the Black Sea. They traded with um, Assyria. They traded. Um, you know, like they settled colonies in Spain. Right, like these were people who went around to all of these different cultures, and they had you know their own Greek myths. Like they read the Odyssey or they listened to the the Odyssey and the Iliad and all that. They had these myths. They had their own like understanding. Of, like here's where the world is. Here, here's what the world is. Um, and um, Herodotus tells the story of one of the Miletians, I think, um, going from Miletus to um, uh, um, uh, one of the cities in um, in ancient uh, Egypt and uh, talking to a priest there. And uh, the guy boasted, like, like I am the seventeenth descendant uh, from one of you know one of our gods, <laughs> right? Like, uh, who created humans like when the world was young? Because ancient Greeks like thought that the world was only like no more than twenty generations old. And the Egyptian priest like nods <laughs> and says, "Yes, mm-hmm. let me show you this." And he, he he walks into the temple and he says, "Like I am like I am like the head. Pri- I'm, I'm a priest. We have a head priest." Before him, his father was the head priest. Before him, his father was the head priest. And every one of them makes a statue of himself and puts it in this line. (laughs) And Mm. let me walk you through the line of head priests. And he walks them through, you know, 20, 100, 200, 300, (laughs) 345 statues in a row. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. this like Greek would-be philosopher's mind is just flipping blown, right? Like all of everything that I thought about the world, like my basic understandings of the world cannot possibly be true. Um, or this guy's you know, making up this. some stuff with his statues, but- Sorry, say that again? Or, or this guy's inventing some extra statues, but- uh, <laughs> that's, that's good skepticism. That's, 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 that's good rationalist thinking. That's good rationalist thinking. Perhaps <laughs> the world only is being, 20 generations long. Be, being open to, the, to this new line of in- compelling evidence is uh, also good rationalist thinking. So, <laughs> yeah. Some, uh, some um, uh, and in fact, like maybe like some historians have pointed to this as like the beginning of rationalist thinking. Like it's the destruction of your own, of your, of your own like cherished beliefs. Eniash, before when you said like these war, these kinds of understanding are at war with one another, right? I think I focused on maybe the stupidest part of that. I said like, well, like the kind of understanding that was like generated by um, uh, by mythic thinking, like is the sort of thing that like Plato is against because it's stupid. But also, like we can say that yeah, like it's but it's like the specific things that always the specific beliefs that do get generated <laughs> by mythic thinking. Um, you have to have this disillusionment. Maybe I have is way too strong of a word there. Like maybe to become a rationalist, it helps to be monstrously disillusioned to have like yeah. your well built ship of thought crash on the shoals and to have everyone on board die <laughs> and have you like swim away as the lone survivor. Maybe that helps. Do how often do you guys see that in the rationalist community? In Same my experience, frequently. at least half the people. Yeah, a lot of them go through some sort of, uh, like you said, mm, foundational sundering of everything they thought was true. And they're like, okay, forget it. Let's start from scratch. Yeah, I mean, I don't have exact numbers, but just based on the people that I talk to and learn about their past, it half would be within a good um, good bound, I think. Okay. That's definitely going to be above the base rate of humans. It's definitely going to yes. be above the base rate of, uh, of modern humans. Um, it's... I'm wondering how it compares to other communities. 
right? Like the atheist community. I used to be really active in the atheist community. Um, yeah. It's probably about this. I'm, I'm wondering if it's the same as that or not. Yeah. I don't think it's any, any coincidence that the rationalism thing was huge. Um, like not into, but like co co evolved and with the tail end of the new atheism thing that, that a yeah. lot of people, there was a lot of overlap between the two. Well, and, and that loss of everything I believe is, is, you know, or that, that realization that everything I believe is false. I think uh, the classic example is like, I thought the universe was designed by a God who loved me. And now I don't think so. Yes. Which Where is- else do you guys see though? Like when people come into the rationalist community and they have, they've gone through these crises, what are they when they're not religious? So surprisingly, this is a thing that has happened to me twice. Um, once when I left religion and was like, oh my God, everyone has been lying to me my entire life about this God person existing and what that means for the universe. Um, the second one has been much more recent where I was like, oh my God, everyone has been lying to me about there being no difference between the sexes and what this means to the oh. universe. Because I was, I was deeply raised in the, in the leftist, um, tabula rasa sort of idea that there really is no difference among humans all humans are basically the same at birth with the exception that at puberty males get some more upper body strength but like just the extent to how much i was wrong about things i was shocked to discover a a number of years ago that men and women literally have different skin that it's just thicker and uh and deeper for men and that really and oh yeah, yeah yeah and i I was listening to NPR d- during the World Cup. Th- there was a big scandal, I don't know, five, six years ago when it was re- um, publicized that the Women's World Cup uh, players, uh, winners, got paid so much less than the Men's World Cup. And uh, I-, I was listening to some interview between two people talking on NPR, and someone said, look, someone could just say, why don't the Men's World Cup winners play the Women's World Cup winners to resolve the <laughs> situation that way? And, like, literally, that is a thought I had. I was like, yeah, I mean, we should do that, right? That would just work. And the very next sentence was, but of course, anyone who said that is obviously arguing in bad faith and no good right-thinking human would ever say such a thing. Not the exact words, but something along those lines. And like, again, my mind was blown. I was like, what? First of all, I think yeah. that's a great idea. Are you telling me there's difference in soccer ability bet- in a sport that doesn't use any upper body strength between the sexes? Uh, what, why and how is it that everybody except me knows this to the point where it would be considered politically suicide to say that if you're on the left like it is literally a thing i believe and yeah then then i discovered that actually there is a great deal of other differences between women men and women and all that went into other things that people want out of their lives and need and i don't know it spiraled greatly from there and you know i'm i'm not like some weird right-wing red pillar type of person but the fact that there are major differences between these two halves of humanity has been legit shocking to me and i was like Oh my God, like my parents, the older generations, they knew this and they hid it because, you know, for the greater good, we want to treat everybody <laughs> as if they're equal. So we're going to say that because it's just a polite lie. We all know it's not true. But then the next generation up, me came up, you know, not getting the joke, as they call it. I, I, I mm. did not know that this was a thing we say because it's polite and it's how we want to treat people. I thought it was literally true. And that had drastic impacts to my life. Hmm. Yeah, I think more generally, I think another avenue might just be coming from uh, realizing that some foundational uh, culture thing that you believed was misrepresented to you or, or was outright wrong, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's it's not 
not entirely dissimilar to uh, religious disillusionment. Yeah. The, I mean, thinking, honestly, just the whole everyone thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose so. I, anything that would be, you know, um, important to you that you believe this, uh, you know, what, not necessarily because it's true, uh, but because it's it's important for other reasons. You know, like everyone in my community believes this. Um, you know, I think I probably had something like that in my. I was it was it would have been ages ago, but with uh, the the wage gap thing. Um, you know, yeah. I I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd always been told oh, that you know oh you know women are paid. Uh, 74 cents on the dollar compared to what men make. And uh, someone, someone had just said like, why wouldn't Walmart hire all women then to save 25% on labor costs? <laughs> and I'm just like, shoot, that's a really good point. It can't be that. Kind of guy. Um, <laughs> otherwise every, every Walmart, every drive through would be all women. If they, if they were really just allowed to pay them, you know, 25 cents less on the dollar. Uh, so it, you know, I don't know if that would be enough to count as like a, I guess that's a small example. I don't know if that'd be quite the foundational shaking, but but it is the sort of thing of like, well, all my peers believe this thing. Uh, it's a big talking yeah. point amongst you know my my political allies. Um, you know, and and then for me to be like, oh well, I guess I'm going against the grain now. Uh, I don't know if that is exactly. Oh no, at, absolutely, absolutely an, analogous. But I I uh, used to teach a moral economics class, and I we did a whole you know week or something of arguing about um, the pay gap. And uh, I remember the feeling of anger <laughs> that some of the members of the class showed when they found out that where that number, right, which is computed differently for different years, right? Um, I've heard eighty-eight, um, whatever. Um, uh, where that number uh, that number refers to not what they think it refers to. <laughs> they right, think that yeah. it means that two people having a man and a woman having exactly the same job, one of them is paid so much less. When actually, where that number, act, how it's measured is if you just take women of a certain age and men of a certain age who are in the workforce um, and don't look at the differences they have in jobs and careers and whatever, um, um, then that is the, the difference, which is not, does not mean that that number is stupid. <laughs> um, it's still right. a very important number. It just means totally a different thing than what they thought it meant. And they were furious when, when they found that yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. It's, to be clear, I don't, I don't deny that there's a paid difference. It's it's just that yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like it was a talking point of you know Hillary Clinton's platform. You know, the the seventy four cents or seventy eight cents, whatever the number was back then. Oh wow! And it felt so disingenuous. And it's like, can we can we not just be honest that we're talking about lifetime earnings and mm-hmm. you know that women get this huge uh, or you know historically and commonly get this this huge career setback when they take 10, 15 years off to raise children, uh, and then they start again. You know, from uh, w- without the so let's say you know you grab a bunch of men and women in their 50s well or you know maybe yeah late 50s and look at what they're earning and the men are earning more ah well there's there's our unfairness it's like yeah but half this group took 15 years off and thus didn't get to keep climbing the ladder all that that time right um I and think so part of but the, i say it took 15 years off i don't mean that you know as a vacation i meant to rear yeah, children yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no judgment yeah. Here, no judgment I think part of the drive to rationalism for a lot of people who have had this experience is just, it's the experience of feeling betrayed, of having been lied to about something that you just trusted that the, the people that told you these things, and then you discover you cannot trust them. And now what are you left with? If you can't trust the people that tell you things, I guess you either give up and be helpless or you start trying to figure things out yourself. And that's when you need things like the tools of rationality to be like, all right, I guess I'm starting from almost nothing. How, how do I figure this stuff out myself? 
And I think yeah. that's uh, yeah, a driving force for a lot of them. I was talking to a very, very smart um, evangelical Christian friend of mine uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was, I do an interreligious um, conversation group, and he um, was asking those of us who were some variant of agnostic or atheist or whatever, like, how do you, how do you build a worldview? <laughs> like, like, it seems really hard. <laughs> and we're like, yes and no. <laughs> um, he's like, but like, how would you even find out what you could trust? You know, like, my view of science, like my the faith that I place in scientists has gone down substantially yeah. <laughs> in the last like five, 10 years. Yeah. It just seems like a lot of what they swear up and down is true is very tenuous. And I don't know how to suss out the good from the bad. And I realized, oh man, like you're being very wise. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you don't know how to do that, you can't you're stupid if you try to build a worldview. You're gonna, you're totally gonna get it wrong. Not to say that I've gotten it all right, but like I've gotten it right because I keep getting it wrong, <laughs> and I keep being betrayed. And I haven't been so very betrayed in a while. You know, like I, I, I I'm hopeful that maybe I have like some great mind change left in me where I've realized I've been totally lied to, and I can break out of because that is such a terrifying and exciting experience hmm. um i'm hopeful i think the goal is to be less wrong over time hey yeah. that's the name of the show that's the name of the thing <laughs> uh, I, i'm curious if we, before we drop the thread on it the the beef that you had with a couple year old podcast and I, I need to start by saying that i i don't stand by anything i said two years ago <laughs> however <laughs> right. if, let, let's see if i still agree with this two I years ago me was an idiot it, <laughs> <laughs> um there was a conversation that you guys are having about I forget what the major conversation was, but the rabbit trail, the really enjoyable rabbit, rabbit trail was, can you separate the art from the artist? And mm. the topic of um, uh, J.K. Rowling came up, and let me just, because the trans issue is so hot, like, let me just like not touch that one at all, and let me go to the much easier one for uh, our community um, and say, um, uh, uh, you guys brought up Orson Scott Cart. Um, and, and I can't remember if it was one of you, both of you, um, the third person who you have on, uh, whose name I'm terrifyingly forgotten right now. I'm so sorry. Jace. I'm so sorry. <laughs> if it was two years ago, it would have been Jace. Okay, that's that's right. That's right, Jace. Um, and uh, I, so I can't remember who who it was who said it, but there was definitely like some expression of if I had known. I'm glad that I read Ender's Game before I knew that he was a Mormon because. I might not have read it otherwise. Huh. And and I and may, maybe I've just missed the subtext where like it's it was just assumed that that is a bad human failing. <laughs> mm. Um but that's a bad human failing. <laughs> and I feel like like for me one of the things like one of the core parts of myself is a, is a rationalist, right? Insofar as I call myself that, which I really do call myself a rationalist, is this striving to get over the feeling of ickiness that I have with people that I really disagree with. And, and, I, and I think that that is so essential, um, just, I mean, pedagogically, but like to personally advance um, because of everything that we've been talking about, like because of you know, like it's it's not that like in Miletus you had like access to some civilization who had it all figured out. <laughs> you just had access to some 
other civilization that was hilariously wrong in their own different way. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and the, you know, in the scientific revolution, like they found a way of just, de- well, first of all, like debating forever, even with ideas that they, they thought were wrong and not just like splitting off and becoming their own, like, p- like ideologically pure community. But also they had this division between what one's private beliefs were, which in the case of most of the early modern scientists were insane, <laughs> like, and were insane for the time too. Um, uh, you had the division between like what they were going to publicly put up for argument and what their own beliefs were. And we find that actually like there seems, oh, um, hold on. I'm actually getting the name of this book right now. Here it is. Michael Strevin's book, The Knowledge Machine. The subtitle is How Irrationality Created Modern Science. There we go. Um, because like, it seems that like so many of our best scientific ideas came from the stupidest, wrongest possible contexts. Um, and he actually worries, the author worries that because we value being authentic now more than they did at the time, this was a time that was steeped in religious persecution where everybody who had interesting religious beliefs kept their religious beliefs to the, to their own flipping selves. <laughs> um, uh, they were used to having wonky ideas um, and hiding them. We don't do that now, um, or we, we don't incentivize that. Um, and so the author actually worries that we're actually going to have less breakthroughs in science and everything. Because mm-hmm. of that, so so sorry. That's that's it. That's uh that's that's, that's what I got. Um, how do you guys want to respond to any of that? I like that you don't remember who said what, so I don't have to pick a pick to, to decide <laughs> if I agree with, with that sentence or not. Like I, for, for so for current me, it's less about. Uh, I think if it was the more, I don't know. I didn't. In fact, I didn't. I didn't know Scott or Orson Scott Card was a Mormon. So uh, then I don't think I was the one who said that. But you know, like I do know that apparently he was staunchly homophobic or something. Um, and I don't think that would have diminished, I I mean, it might have, I don't know if that, hmm, would that have made me, would that have made me less likely to pick up Ender's Game? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, maybe just on default, you know, like if I, I don't know, um, I, I'm disinclined to read Jordan Peterson's writings, even on the stuff that he's, uh, apparently good at writing about because I I was exposed to him first as a nut job. Hmm. And so. You know, I, I, I'm given to understand he has some useful things to say, but it's like, you know, I'm going to be, I feel like I'm gonna have to weed through this nonsense. And then I'm going to have in the back of my mind, you know, oh yeah, this guy's kind of gone off the, the, you know, the edge of Looneyville. Um, so, I mean, there, there's something just about screening for time, uh, you know, where I'll prioritize what I want to watch. You know, it's kind of like, you know, oh, I love this director and they just put out a new thing. I'm going to watch their new thing, you know? So it's like, uh, going with what I think I'll like already, um, but as far as like differentiating art from artist, I think that Orson Scott Card is brought up because like I, I read Ender's Game before I knew anything about the author. And the thing is, I could never learn anything about him and still love the book. Right. Yeah. And so in, in that sense, the, the art is extremely distant from the artist. Uh, the, it, you know, his name not even need to be on the book cover and I can still enjoy the story. You know, I don't mm-hmm. need to know a thing about the person who invented it. Um, so I think that that's my my current take. I mean, I basically agree. I don't think that. Um, so I, I don't think that having the knowledge of an author should impact a book at all. It can, because sometimes having a historical context of what's going on and what the author is responding to can inform what you're reading and make it more interesting. But um, as, as Stephen said, I think a good piece of art 
you could have no idea who the author is at all, and it's still a good piece of art, and that is what everybody thinks should aspire to. So, it, no, specifically knowing someone is a norm- Mormon would not make me less inclined to read their book. And in fact, due to what I know about Mormons and founders of fa- founder effects, it would, might make me think that the book is better than average because Mormons kind of got a sub speciality in writing science fiction now due, <laughs> due to founder effects and uh and how much it's it's um a, a focus of their Mormon universities. It, it's really interesting. And they generally keep their religion out of their writing because they know it's not popular. Uh I don't know. Uh the thing is like other things do okay. So as a personal example for our next book club book, uh there is a book you guys which have I, a book club? Uh, I am in a book club in Denver. Yes, uh, we meet twice, usually oh, twice a month, to discuss science fiction and fantasy. Okay. Um, the, the next book that we picked, I was looking, you know, to buy it in Amazon, and I saw at the top that it is a Nebula Award nominee, which uh, is one of the two science big science fiction awards, and is recommended by NPR. And I told the rest of my book club I am going to skip this meeting because. To to me, that is literally a disendorsement. If I see that these people liked it, that means I'm probably not going to like it. And that's not necessarily saying anything bad about the book. It says that like tastes differ. Like if somebody recommends a piece of music to me and I see that it won a country music award, I know I'm probably not going to like it because I don't really like country and I have nothing against country or the people who like country. I'm sure it's an amazing country book uh, song. It's just not something I'm going to enjoy. And so sometimes you can get information about whether you'll like something or not like that. So if you're someone who has discovered that writings by Mormon science fiction authors are usually kind of not to your taste, then I can understand that. But um, I don't think just the fact that a person has a set of beliefs which conflict with your beliefs should ever be a reason to not read something. Because some of the best books I've ever read have been written by people who I strongly disagree with in other aspects of life. And just to give you one more thing before uh, to stack on for you to reply to is on the flip side of that, sometimes knowing about the author can, can really enhance the enjoyment of it. You know, um, reading uh, Unweaving the Rainbow, for example, um, by Richard Dawkins, you know, he he doesn't take a lot of swings at religion in it. In fact, I think this was bef- I think he wrote this well before the uh, the God delusion. Um, but knowing how he feels about that, you can kind of sense the undercurrent, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I see what you're trying not to say here. Um, <laughs> or reading, you know, what lies dreaming, and if I know Enyosh personally, I can see, I can just, you know, insert a lot of, you know, I can psychoanalyze the author on on a whole other level, right? <laughs> um, or I don't know, reading uh, Contact. Or here's a good example, you know, this just because it's a fun, well, no, yeah. You know, reading Contact by Carl Sagan, you know, knowing that he's a scientist helps. Mm-hmm. You know, reading reading The Martian by Andy Weir, knowing that he, he's not exactly a scientist, but he wrote it trying to get as much of the science as possible correct in no small part because he, did, he didn't want Neil deGrasse Tyson ripping it apart <laughs> uh, help, helps enjoy it because you're like, oh, okay, so when he, you know, he, I, I can kind of put Wait. more trust in the numbers here because I can tell, cause I know that he was trying to get this correct. Not just like having fun telling a story. Wait, what did, what's, what's the connection to Neil deGrasse Tyson? Way back. I'm sure maybe this podcast is still on, but way back in the day, this would have been 15 years ago. That's my new benchmark for how long ago everything was. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he was on Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, star talk radio. And Tyson said, you know, the, the book did a really good job getting a lot of the science, right? And he says, thanks. I did that with you ripping it apart in mind. Because <laughs> um, Tyson, you know, would love to go to Twitter and be like, "Oh, well, you know, yeah. this 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 makes no sense because of how big this thing is, or whatever." Right? I remember uh, when he came on the Daily Show and he told John Stewart, "You know, your Earth in the intro is rotating backwards." <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I, uh, my son is uh, going through Hail Mary for, I think, the third time mm. right now. We're big Andy Weir fans in my family, in my household. Um, okay, so what I hear you both saying, I, I, I'm in general agreement with, agreement with what you're all saying. Um, one of the things that I'm hearing you say is that the having this information is relevant. We should not just try to totally ignore. It's it's uh, counterproductive in many situations to totally ignore um, the identity, um, beliefs, um, choices, actions of the of the author. That's, totally not, that's not quite what I'm saying. I, I'm saying oh, I'm that I'm, no, no. Because in one hand, I'm saying that it, it can enhance stuff, but it's it's by no means necessary. Uh, you know, if I if I got the Harry okay, Potter book yeah. series with no uh, author on the front of it. I would have loved it as a kid, you know, I, I probably still like it now. Um, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's a fun, gripping story, you know, and especially for the age that I read it at, I was at Harry's age for most of the time I was reading these books, hmm. you know? So like, as, as the books got more mature, so did I, et cetera. Um, you know, so like, uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I think in, I, th- I guess I'm taking this awesome stance where I get to have, I get to play both sides, uh, where <laughs> knowing the author helps and, and, it, and it shouldn't help or do it hurt at all. So. I mean, you know, in literary theory, right, there's the whole like death of the author movement that said like we shouldn't think that the author is even an entity in this. And then there's the whole like let's explain the book that we're talking about by looking at the author's biography and making everything connected to that. And both of the, there's there's wisdom in both of those. Um, so then, then let me fine tune that by saying that the thing that I definitely agree with you about is both about it is that knowing the author can be good information can be helpful information. Um, and yeah, I guess I also agree that it's not, it's not, uh, necessary in many situations. Maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, the part that I, that maybe there's still a difference between us in is that I feel like it's a really important thing to try. Once we recognize that we have this cognitive bias of thinking that the other side is icky of going out of our way or of trying to as much as we can. And I, you know, like, I, I suck at this, and I think I'm still better than most people are at this because it's so painful. Um, uh, of of actually like presenting ourselves with good art and good um, uh, arguments and good relationships from the other side, right? Like if I found out that somebody was, I don't know, like when I find out that somebody has politics that I really disagree with about d- disagree with, um, but has a, a novel out that. I might love. I get really excited. <laughs> um, or I determine that I'll never read it because they're human garbage and I should break into the bookstore and set all their books <laughs> on fire. Right. Like I have complicated feelings. But um, but I feel like we should try to uh to to push ourselves into more of this of this thing. Is there any disagreement between us on this? This reminds me of Actually, uh you asked for like moments of like, oh, you know foundational awakenings where it's like, Oh, what everything I believe is wrong. This does tie in where, you know, like the first time reading Peter Singer, I was like in my early twenties and, uh, you know, first exposed to the, the best arguments for util- for utilitarian thinking. I imagine I'm not the only person that found that like compelling and kind of, uh, world view shattering. And yeah. they, those people probably find their way into the EA circles, which find their way, you know, that, that Venn diagram overlapping with the rationalist circles. So that's probably another Avenue. Um, my only argument would be like the amount of time that I have. Uh, well, and you know, if I've read their other stuff before, you know, like if it just turns out, you know, like the country music example, you know, gave, like if it, it's unlikely I'll like this next country music song because I hated the, you know, again, nothing personal, but I just didn't like the first hundred I heard, you know? Um, so it, there's, there's something about that. Uh, but I, I I, I do, I do like engaging with arguments to disagree with when they're, when they're well presented. Um, for sure. I, 
very strongly agree with you. Actually, I think that if you can be presented with good art from the other side, that is extremely valuable and people should pursue that. Like the, the harder part is when you're, you know, consuming new things that have just come out in the last year, you don't really know if it's good yet or not. Um, but which is where a lot of these things come in, but like something that is known as just really good piece of art, a classic that written by someone who you don't like, I think that would be actually very good to seek out. I say this because I guess this is such a big deal to me because I feel like in any kind of Egan school, the high school curriculum, (laughs) not all of it, some of it's going to be science. Some of it's going to be, um, well, science can get contentious, obviously some of it's going to be math or whatever, but like, significant swaths of the high school curriculum are going to be experienced by a lot of people (laughs) as these are the most horrific ideas ever. Why would you, (laughs) why would you want children to ever hear about these things? Oh, really? Like which ones? I mean, like you, you need to, okay. I, how careful do I need to be here? I, I'm not going to be very careful, right? Like you need to be reading things that, like some people in the community, you know, like their their uncles at the very they're very at the very least, like might say their proverbial uncles um, uh, are going to say, "What? That's woke nonsense, right?" Like you're going to actually have to be reading um, uh, economic leftists. You're going to be half you're half going to be half to reading Ayn Rand. You're going to have to read Thomas Sowell. You're going to have to read. Um, Black, the Black Panthers, right? You're, you're going to actually have to read people who, because of their ideas and their advocacy for their ideas, and sometimes because of, you know, the fact that they literally pulled triggers <laughs> while pointing guns at other people, mm. um, killed people, are, are complicit in the actual deaths of people. Like, you have to understand, like, what is it that is driving the Nazis yeah. in order to really understand the world? <laughs> um, uh, you, you have to, we have to actually get inside of like, what did it feel like to be a Soviet officer who is liquidating the the Kulak, I don't know how to pronounce that word, Kulaks, um, who is starving like the productive bourgeoisie out of their communities and watching their children die and to be doing it because you're trying to make the world a better place. Um, You have to be, we have to like advertise that like, yeah, like in order to really understand in order to really like have an understanding of ideas and to know that your ideas are your own, you have to have tangoed with ideas that lots of people, most people now with some of these ideas, virtually all people say are evil ideas, the ickiest of the icky. So I guess that's why it's, that's a big deal to me. Okay. No, I like, I like that. You know, I think, uh, I certainly never read, um, if if any you know Nazi officers wrote autobiographies of their time you know during the Holocaust, I certainly never even heard of those books. I'm sure they're out there actually, and that might have been a really compelling parallel to read along with. Um, I'm going to say his last name wrong. Ellie uh, Weisel Wiesel. Yeah, Wiesel is how I've heard that pronounced. Uh, yeah, I mean, so reading reading those two books as you know one summer reading assignment or something would have been quite the uh, the undertaking. I wonder uh, at what age group that would be. Most value, probably high school, like you said. Um, but yeah, no, it that, depends that's, that's interesting. On it, right? Like, it depends on how evil the ideas are. I'm writing yeah. down right now restricted section, right? Like, maybe what a, an Egan mm-hmm. school would want to have for the high schoolers or ha, is, is, is to have is a restricted section where it's like, yep, yeah, like these are the books that people really fight about. Yes, we know that 
by restricting them, we're going to make them <laughs> more popular. <laughs> um, that's the point. Uh, we want, to, yeah, we want, we actually want to, but we also want to acknowledge that these are really controversial books. Um, probably it's a stupid idea, but I, it's an, it's a piquant idea. So I kind of like it from that. The book, by the way, to read, if you're interested in, in the, what were the Nazis, like what drove the Nazis? I mean, obviously you're talking millions of people, but, um, is, uh, one of the books that changed my life was, um, evil inside human violence and cruelty by the great psychologist Roy Baumeister, um, which, um, has a, framework <laughs> that says, okay, like when we look at like really, really terrible things, we can probably postulate that they are caused by one of these four basic human psychological drives, human uh, systems. Um, uh, and we can then, so each of those gets a chapter and then there's a couple different sort of interpersonal dynamics that can bring people from light evil into horrible evil. Um, so those get a couple more chapters, if, my, if I'm remembering mm. that correctly. Um, highly recommended. Awesome. Well, on that note, we're probably going to have to wrap up here real soon because I got to get going. Um, but I, Stephen, I think you, you had some notes too that I'm not sure if we got to the things that you wanted to touch. I think we talked about, I think we talked about them all last time, actually. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Well, I have one last thing that I really, really wanted to ask about before we end all this. You said something about agonizing is eating the world. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I think the way that I think about <laughs> what a terrible way of opening a sentence. I think the way <laughs> that I think about uh, my own metacognitive aspects of, uh, I talked to a lot of teachers and um, the problem that they have, um, uh, I said this is a fellow teacher, but that they have is, okay, like here's this thing, I'm supposed to teach it, here's a lesson, I need to make this lesson interesting. How do I make this lesson interesting? And uh, okay, like, so it's, I don't know, pick some stupid, boring, long division, like the the the, the, the metaphor, the, the way that we do, the method that we do um, for, for long division, okay, right? Like, you need to teach that. Okay, so like, how does one eganize it? And you say, okay, like, what is, like, let's, let's learn a heck of a lot about this thing. <laughs> let's learn where this um, algorithm comes from. Let's learn at what came before it and what it was thought to be the better, you know, the, the successor to. Um, let's look at alternate methods of this, maybe. Um, let's look at, like, the, if we know the person who invented, like, you know, like the first, you start with this number and then you see how many times the divisor can go into the dividend or into the whatever. I can never remember those words. Um, you, uh, you, 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 uh, let's look into the person who made that. If in fact, like he or she has a name, um, if, uh, they don't, or even if they do, um, let's like look at the cultural situation that, um, they were living in. Like what was math, like what was going on with math at the time? Okay. So like you, you go deep into it and you find like, what is like for me, the, like the deep human value. What makes this exciting? What's make what makes this electric? What makes this shiny? Um, Egan, this is what Egan means by the word imagination, right? Like, like what, like what, like captures your own imagination about this? Um, and then you say, okay, so now that I know, like, what sort of like woof, I want to help bring the kids to in this. Um, 
what are the tools um, that they're pretty good at, um, the cognitive tools they're pretty good at that I can use to like, bring this thing out, right? So like you identify like, what is the emotional binary of this, right? Like is it like stinginess versus generosity? Is it good versus evil? Is it freedom versus oppression? Is it whatever? Um, We're still talking about long division. Like, yeah, right? Like, so I'm, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that I don't actually know where the long division thing <laughs> comes from. But I can um, imagine th- that, uh, you know, I know enough about the, enough about, about the history of mathematics that like, um, when like, before the Greeks, um, like people were able to do tricks to divide by five and by 10 and by two and by four and whatever. But like, they didn't know how to do seven. <laughs> they didn't know how to divide anything by seven. Um, so like, you had to make these like, really roundabout ways of doing it, right? So I'm imagining that like the long division uh, algorithm is this way of like just like crunching any effing number <laughs> and dividing it by any other effing number, right? So maybe like the binary there is something like these bespoke set of tools, you know, that you have to be sort of this have a, this artisanal uh, tastes in versus a machine that will crush any math problem <laughs> that you put mm. any two numbers that you wish to divide into each other. Um, mm. Okay, so now that I have that kind of binary of like nimbleness and like brute force <laughs> how can i explain this okay right sorry so I'm, I'm i'm i realize that i'm going too much into detail in this but it's this way eganizing is this way of looking deep into the thing that you want to explore with somebody and say what is already implicit in this this thing that we want to learn as a cultural artifact um uh, or about the universe or whatever. Like, what, what can we, how can we feel about this and what can help us feel about this? And then instead of saying, all right, everyone, I, I've come up with this simplified way. First, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, right? I used to teach kids to, to do long division, like the simplest possible sort of algorithmic way. There's a little mnemonic for it. It was stupid. It was fine. It was okay. Um, but it's so much easier if you like, tap into the deep human meaning implicit into it. Okay. So what do I mean when I say that eganizing is eating the world? Um, I think it was Richard Hanania who wrote that like politics has become stupider in the last 10 years because people who used to watch professional wrestling are now following politics because certain political entrepreneurs realized that they could get more votes and people in the you know political media realized they could get more eyeballs if they could find what is the deep human meaning in politics and, you know, trade disputes or whatever, right? Boring, yawn. Why would you start the Star Wars saga with a trade dispute? Um, But you can find the deep human meaning in that. You can like exaggerate it. (laughs) You can help people feel it as if it is a life and death thing personal to them. Um, And this is what's happening in politics. This is what has been happening in politics where everything feels existential. This is what is happening in politics. all aspects of what we now just call social media, where we say that everything is becoming shinier, everything is becoming harder to look away from. And it's not just because there are more colors and they're moving faster and we all have VR goggles glued to our, 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 our heads, right? It's also because like people who could have been historians, and I'm not saying that it's that they should have been, but like people are doing with social media, they're, they're in, in, in other media, they're, um, they're tapping into these deep human things. Um, and, um, and using it to sell shitty products, <laughs> yeah. um, and to argue for ideas of dubious truth value. Um, the market has locked on to, um, uh, what I call eganizing. <laughs> um, and education is 
barely even recognizing that this is a thing is a game that they can play too. That in fact, educators are um, sitting on top of the grand store of all of the accumulated wows <laughs> that any human being has ever figured out. In education, we have the shiniest shinies, <laughs> and we are you know talking about what is you know what brand of textbook should we be having in kids class in our kids classrooms right. <laughs> stupidest debates and everyone is just letting um the marketplace go and egonize itself and we're we're not doing it for education yeah damn i i want to this is probably going to be a whole different podcast so maybe we should have you back sometime in the new year um i kind of want to ask if you have thoughts on how to address this or have found anyone who does have thoughts about it and honestly we don't have time for a full answer but like in broad strokes not in broad strokes as a yes or no question do you have thoughts that we should explore in the future yes and i uh this afternoon actually uh, am kicking off a new jag on um, my sub stack that specifically tries to answer that question well hot damn this timing could not be better <laughs> Well, um, thank you once again for joining us. This has been a sprawling conversation that I just found amazingly fascinating. You are so much fun to talk to. Yeah, second day. Uh, you got here too. I loved this. And uh, thank you for pressing me on these things. Can I say, if we were to ever do this again, press me more? Like, just go to the comment section of um, of the original uh, book review that I was part of the book review contest, and like, you will see a lot of like really critical takes on the things that I say. So feel free to just like copy from those if you'd like, or like attack like the notion of is it really possible to make schooling wonderful? Um, because I think a lot about that, and frankly, I could stand to have more press back on that. All right, I'll do okay. my best. I imagine a lot of the pushback you got was from teachers or something, which I'm not qualified to speak on exactly how they feel. But yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll read through those and and uh, I'll read some of your blog posts too and find some of the if there's any argument there, I'll try my best to bolster them and, and come at you real good. <laughs> Inish, I want to ask this question before we probably move into the, like the we're gone or after talking. Can we buy? Can I buy your book? Do you have do you have a print book or is it just an ebook? I do have a print book. It's uh, available actually at um, a number of sellers, but the 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 big one is Amazon. If you go to Amazon, you can buy a print version of both uh, my short story collection and my uh, full length novel. I realized talking today, oh, like I actually had like been meaning to like, read more of his short stories, especially the one that you'd mentioned, the friends we made along the way. And I thought, oh, like I I should ask him about this, and everyone who's listening to the podcast should know about this. Once again, you guys <laughs> do not self-aggrandize enough. Ah, oh, okay. Well, um, the so the real fanfic is the friends we made along the way is not available in print. That's only available online, so you'd have to search for it. But I do have a plan to early, sometime in the first quarter of next year, put out another short story collection, which will include it in print. So that's coming. Okay. 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 In time for Christmas? Oh, definitely not. Well, I mean, in time for Christmas of next year, yes, <laughs> but not this year. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming back, Brandon. This was a lot of fun. I, I've enjoyed every conversation we've had and look forward to, to more. Hell yes, yeah. me too. Thanks very, very much. Oh, oh, any last thing you wanted to say or uh, plug before we go? You do have your losttools.substack um, and oh. you have Science is Weird, which is looks to be just amazing for kids ages 8 to 18. I 
I put way more work into the science is weird curriculum. Um, and I like at some point, um, it would be a delight to talk with you guys specifically about what I believe to be possible in science education, um, using, um, Egan. Um, because I think that I, th I think that it's huge. And I think that I can speak in lots of specifics in a way that, um, illuminates the whole picture of what schooling can be. Um, but, um, in a way that I, I think that your, uh, your audience, um, will particularly find interesting. Fantastic. Awesome. Sounds great. All right. Thank you again for joining us and we will see everybody in two weeks. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Steven, welcome back. We are doing the next part of the podcast now. That's right. Los Long Posts. I found these two interesting because at first when I was reading them, I'm like, why why all this math? What does this have to do with Human's Guide to Words? But like then when we get to the end, there's a massive payoff. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this this totally made sense. That was my exact uh, experience reading them as well. I think, um, you know, Yudkowsky was reading math books since, you know, I think he has single digit years of age. So I think he... I think he Typical minds a little bit on how much the rest of us enjoy math, but that said, it's not like this is exactly hard to follow, and it's not not valuable. But you can be darn sure that I've never uh, calculated entropy, you know, with a uh, binary code. Uh, nor will I probably ever. But now I know that I can if I ever need to. I think it may be less typical minding and more aiming for a specific audience. Yeah, that makes sense. Still, I'd like to, I'd like to feel included. So, <laughs> I mean, we can look in from the outskirts. Yeah, that's true. We're not mathematicians, but we, you know, this isn't, it's not just mathematicians. Yeah. Sometimes we play ones on TV and that's close enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> so entropy and short codes uh, starts out with postulating a system X that has eight possible states that are equally likely and introduces a definition of entropy, which was new to me. Um, I don't know if where this comes from specifically, but uh, entropy of this system is three bits, which means that on average, we have to ask three yes or no questions to find out X's value. Yeah, it, the use of the word entropy, I'm sure, is technically correct, because I can't point to an example where Yudkowsky ever has something written here that is technically incorrect. Yeah, like in some math way. Right, exactly. But I've never come across this use of entropy elsewhere in my life. Uh, usually it's meant to just be, well, I guess it is a measure of the disorder in a system, which if you squint, you can make more or orderly by learning more about it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just I've never, I never usually hear it talked about that way. But basically, when the eight possible states are all equally likely with each yes or no question, you can eliminate half of them, which is how it takes uh, three bits to get to the answer that you want. Right. Then he says, suppose a system Y that has four possible states, but they aren't all equally likely. The first one is 50% likely, the next one 25%, and then the last two are both 12.5% likely. He says that the entropy of Y would be 1.75 bits, meaning that we can find out the value <laughs> by asking 1.75 yes or no questions, and then goes on to describe what this means. Since the first option is 50%, you can get rid of 50% of the entropy with a single question that will eliminate uh, the other three answers if number one is yes. So half the time, you only have to ask one question. And then 25% uh, of the time, you can ask two questions to get locate the answer that you want. And then uh, the other 25% of the time, you have to ask a third question to differentiate between the last two states. So on average, it all comes out to 1.75 questions that you have to ask if you have to repeatedly query this sort of system. Right. This is one of those cases where like, I'm glad I read the post rather than listen to it. Because mm. these ones get, I mean, this is hardly like one of the mathiest ones, but the mathier ones are hard to listen to. 
uh, yeah. having the little chart. What do you call that? Infographic? I don't know. Two line Excel spreadsheet. Um, yeah. <laughs> really helps uh, pin this out because you know, my, my first thought is how do I ask 0.75 of a, of a question? You know, yeah. what is what is what is one, three fourths of a bit? But no, he's saying on average. And I, yeah, that makes sense. And then when he's talking about, you know, code transmission, you know, as compactly as possible, uh, I'm like, oh, I see where this is going now. Okay, gotcha. The point is that you reserve, you reserve short words for things that you'll need to say frequently and longer words for things that you won't need to say as often. Right. Because like you got to assign a code to each possibility. You assign the short codes to the ones that happen most often because that helps to differentiate them from the more uncommon ones easily. You can more quickly distinguish them than by using a short code for all of them, which, um, yeah, boils down to the words thing, as you just said. Yeah. I thought one of the interesting points to all this is that when he says, he says, when you take this art to its limit, the length of the message you need to describe something corresponds exactly or almost exactly to its probability, which is kind of neat. I'm going to just take his word for that. So and I think he, he fleshes that out a bit more in the next post. You know, I didn't spend any time trying to think of counterexamples where like, so, and I think he talks about it too, is like, that's like a, you know, a formalization of Occupy's Razor. Part of what it means to be parsimonious with your explanation is that you're not introducing a bunch of extra information. And the more extra information you do introduce, the less likely it is. You know, like, right. try, try to explain um, everything we observe in the sky with the observation of the planets wandering and stuff. You've got to, like, really, really squint and make a lot of a lot of confusing inferences. Or you can just say, oh, it looks like we go, we all go around the sun, actually. And that, that, that explains it perfectly. Yeah. That's a good example. It is. When I was reading this, it totally reminded me of when we were reading Plane Crash. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very frequently going back to very large concepts having very short words. Because apparently, like in Dot the Lawn, people just use these concepts so freaking often. The frequency of how often you run into it is directly proportional to how short the word is. I think we did talk about that. And that was probably mentioned in the book, too. Well then, good. We're, we're good readers. Well, no, I mean, well, and, you know, it was a while ago, but I think that was that was one of the things he that um, Keltham lamented a lot was like, "Oh, you guys don't have a word for this." Okay, well then we'll use these long words for it. So I think that was kind of like an explicit criticism of his is that this this language doesn't seem like it's designed in a way that makes the kinds of conversations he's trying to have easy, and that these concepts simply aren't used by these people very often, which probably was insane making for him because he'd be like, "These are the most fundamental concepts for thinking sanely about the world." Right. How, how can you just not use them? I'm sure there's a three-syllable word for, you know, basic level categories uh, having short names. <laughs> that, that is actually two concepts. Basic level categories is probably a single-syllable word. Yes. Yeah, that, that was a thing pulled out near the end there, that basic level categories in our language tend to have very short names. And nouns with short names tend to refer to basic level categories. Chair versus recliner versus uh, furniture, etc. Yeah. I also pulled out this one thing where he points out that I can define a word any way I like obstructs the art of carving reality at his joints. And likewise, the sensible sounding, the labels we attach towards are arbitrary, obstructs awareness of compactness, which gets, we get more detail about that in this, in the next post. Yeah. I liked the, the ending of this post has a fun, you know, a lot of them have fun little last uh, closing zingers. Or, as Douglas Hofstadter put it, there's a reason why the English language uses the to mean the and anti-disestablishmentarianism to mean anti-disestablishmentarianism instead of anti-disestablishmentarianism other way around. Yes. The fact that I st stumbled over that, I'm going to go ahead and just uh, own because that word's are long and complicated on purpose. I believe yeah. it is the longest word in, this, in the language, right? Oh, I have no idea. I think it's the longest word in English. I think that's why he used it. Ah, uh, okay, cool. And I'm running a quick uh, science here, or I guess you can call mm -hmm. it that. 
to test the idea that common words are short in other language or like in language on purpose. Skipping mm-hmm. across 15 or so just now, the word water looks like it's one or two syllables in all the languages that have uh, letters that I can read, which is pretty cool because water is the thing, you know, every, every language would want to be able to talk about. Oh yeah. And if we look at some of the ones that are using non-English or non, what do you call it? Roman letters. It actually gives me the English pronunciation underneath it. Mm-hmm. So let me find one here. Let's look at Japanese. Mizu. All right. Yeah. So one or two syllables, it seems like, for everyone that I checked. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. That is. Yeah. I'm sure there's got to be outliers, and it would be interesting to find out what the those exceptions are and why they are. Yeah. You know, when I live forever, I'll, I'll get super into learning languages uh, yeah. and learning about them just because it's, it is it is fascinating. Yeah. But we are not living forever today, so not today. Not today, unfortunately. We've got to talk about mutual information and density in thing space. Yeah. All right. So we were talking about single systems before. What if you got two systems? Like X has eight states, Y has four states. What's the entropy of the combined system X and Y? Uh, basically, well, Are they ass- related or not? First question, Egg- right? There we go. Yeah. Uh, you would assume five, but... If they're entangled in some way, we're learning something about Y tells us something about X, then you can do it with less bits. Uh, he supposes that if, for example, like if both X and Y are either both odd or both even, then you can do it with four instead of five. Right. So basically, there is one bit of mutual information between those two systems. Learning what X is gives us one bit of information about Y. We boil down a little bit. After you learn Z, your beliefs about Y is just what it was before, uh, is equivalent to saying that learning about Y never tells you anything about Z, or vice versa. And so there's no mutual information between Y and Z, and where there's no inf- mutual information, there is no Bayesian evidence, and vice versa. Right. Uh, we're getting into that because if there is an unusually high probability of Z plus Y, defined as a probability that's higher than you know the marginal probabilities would indicate by default, it follows that observing Y is evidence that increases the probability of Z and symmetrically observing Z must favor Y. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's a fun example today. You know, like the sun out is evidence that it's warm out, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It turns out today, the sun just came out like half an hour ago and it's still 20 degrees, but it's still positive evidence, right? Yeah. The snow on the ground is strong counter evidence. Yes. The reason he brings up all these entangled things is because as we go back to words now, the question comes back to, like, why do you want a word for human? He pulls back to a few earlier episodes where we defined human as a mortal featherless biped. Why not just say mortal featherless biped all the time? And part of it is because it's helpful to have a shorter words for things that uh, you encounter often. But if your code for describing these things is efficient, there wouldn't be a special advantage to having a special word for a combination like that. Unless it's more likely for the combination of mortal and featherless and biped to be more common in combination than you would expect just from those things separately. Yeah. Uh, you know, mortal featherless biped is a f- whole five syllables longer. And as we're coming to articulate with, uh, I guess, mathematical proof, there's, there's no, that's no coincidence, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and since he's saying that, like, if you know, if you observe Y, when they're entangled, if you observe Y, that increases the probability of Z. If a word is a good word, like human, then that means that if you observe featherless biped, that increases the probability that it will also be mortal. And that is where there's real utility in having words like this. 
that uh, having a word for a thing rather than just listing its properties is a more compact code precisely in those cases where we can infer some of those properties from the other properties. So I think this actually is the sentence that, because I, again, I always try to, going through these, you know, doing these uh, segments here, I'm always trying to zoom out and wonder why is he writing this post? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I totally understood the the human use of language uh, sequence. You know, it's important to know what the hell we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And no, you can't just use whatever you, whatever words you want if we're all going to play on the same game, et cetera. Um, yeah. But why, why talk about short distances or, you know, short communication um, lengths here? And mm-hmm. I think that that is part of it because, I mean, you know, not, not, not saying to define any word you like, but it's like it's helpful to have these shorthands. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if we want to use a loaded word like intelligence, so if we all kind of know what that means, it, it saves a lot of trouble than just trying to describe all the capabilities of ChatGPT. Yeah. You think that I'm on the right track there? I do think you're on the right track. Uh, I think the payload that we're about to get to right here is the thing that really made me have a whoa moment. All right, let's do it. All right, so he says, so having a word Wigan for green-eyed, black-haired people, as we discussed, I think, three or four episodes ago in the Less Wrong Sequences there, is more useful than just saying green-eyed, black people precisely when... Black-haired people. Oh, was I saying just black people? (laughs) The second time you did (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, no, you're good. It's, it's more useful than just saying green-eyed, black-haired people. Precisely when green-eyed people are more likely than average to be black-haired, and vice versa, or Wiggins share other properties that can be infer- inferred at greater than default probability. And the example he used was really liking ketchup, which means, like, here's the big one: one may even consider the act of defining a word as a promise to this effect. It asserts that the word Wigan will somehow help you make inferences and shorten your messages. If it is not the case uh, that the word Wigan will do this, then the word Wigan is a lie. The word claims that certain people are worth distinguishing as a group, but they're not. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I like that. You know, and it, it's they're, they're, you know we've talked a lot about like what a group even means with edge cases and exceptions and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But this is the. The kind of payoff of like, if you're going to make up um, whatever a new term for, I don't know, an existent group of people or something, if it's not providing any new information, then it is kind of pointless, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure this actually works great when you, you know, when a country is at conflict and you name the other the other group of people that you're fighting something, whatever it is, right? Right, right. So it's like, un- unless it can, unless that gives us some sort of information, then mm-hmm. it's not really helpful. Uh, in fact, it's, it's counter helpful. Because you're acting like you're, you're giving us more information, but you're not. Yeah. In fact, you're giving us less. Because Wigan doesn't mean anything un- unless, in this case, it means you know green-eyed, black-haired person. If if you're not actually describing something worth describing, you're not you're, you're giving us less than you would have if you'd just given us the long description of it. Yeah. Because you you made a promise to us, and that promise was not fulfilled. Yeah. That was a cool ass insight to me. Uh, the last thing I have here at the bottom is the way to carve reality at its joints is to draw your boundaries around concentrations of unusually high probability density in thing space. Just good advice. Yeah, no, I like it. I always liked the once it painted the picture for me whenever these ages ago was the, you know the, the the mental picture of thing space. I picture basically like the universe, you know, with clusters and galaxies and whatever. And the mm-hmm. more you zoom in, the closer you are to you know picking out like this this particular couch. You know, mm-hmm. which is somewhere in the chair cluster, which is somewhere in the furniture cluster, which is somewhere in the solid objects you put in your house cluster, etc. Yeah. Um, kind of fun. Well, Stephen, what are we reading for next time? Next time, we're doing a super exponential concept space and simple words. 
super exponential concept space is not simple words. I'm, I'm interested, I'm interested to see where that one goes. And, uh, this one, I do remember one of my favorites, leave a line of retreat. Ah, yes. Okay. Uh, the next thing we have to do is thank a patron. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How could we almost forget? I don't know. We almost do very frequently, which is weird because it's like the most important thing to us. Uh, it really is. Yeah. This episode, the most important thing is giving a shout out to David Wilkins. David, thank you. Total hero. We really appreciate it. Um, absolutely. Yeah. All, all the standard stuff, which I hate just saying, but yeah, I mean, uh, it makes a huge difference to us and, uh, Really, really is a as a motivator on days where, you know, I love doing this, but not every day do I love doing stuff. But on the days where I right. don't love doing stuff, uh, these are you know big motivators. So um, knowing that people like David care enough to or enjoy this enough to you know want to pay us to hear more, it's a uh, it's motiv- Can I use the word motivating again without getting a, a English uh, penalty? Mm-hmm. I'm it's fine with me. All right. Yeah, it really does help. And honestly, even if like someone is listening to this way in the back catalog three years in the past or in the future or whatever, and you kind of like some stuff and just want to subscribe for a month or two to support, you know, a hundred episodes ago, feel free to do that. Like, it doesn't matter if you're caught up or whatever. We really appreciate past support. Retroactive support from the past is just as awesome. Yeah, I really wish Patreon had the ability to just let you log in and give money. And then leave and like not do a subscription thing. Yeah. Because there are a handful of creators that I would totally just give 50 bucks or whatever because I've listened to or enjoyed tons of their content. Mm-hmm. But like I don't want to remember to unsubscribe in six months or something. We spoke briefly about setting up a Venmo. I should get around to doing that here in uh, early January. Yeah, we can do that literally whenever. Also, the second favorite thing of us doing is talking about the Guild of the Rose. Oh, my God. Now I actually did forget to do that at this point. In our defense, right. we, are, we do the last long posts uh, when we on days where we have guests. We typically do them on different days where we're recording the real episodes. So, mm-hmm. tad bit scrambled, but we do have to talk about Guild of the Rose, our favorite uh, collaborators slash uh, partners in raising the sanity waterline. They are not quite like what um, Brandon is doing with teaching people how to love knowledge and um, and educate our kids. I think it's more aimed at adults and at rationalists who are at least in the you know young adult, if not later phase. Again, it is a teaching of skills and enabling people to to do things better and to be passionate about improving themselves, which is basically what education is supposed to be, right? Yeah. And they do it in a fun gamified way. I mean, the path system is so cool. Mm-hmm. If anyone's listening and hasn't at least clicked the link in the description, uh, I strongly encourage you to do so and just peruse for five minutes. It, it's it's really uh, a great setup. They've, they've put a lot of thought and, and time into this, and uh, I strongly recommend it. Me too. We believe in what they're doing, and that is why we partner with them. They're just helping to make the world a better place and make everyone who goes there stronger and better at doing, you know, being effective in their life, being rational, applying the methods of rationality. Yeah. There we go. Actually applying rather than just having fun with them. Yeah. Yeah. Totes. Strong agree. Thank you to them for helping support us and for helping to do the good work. Thank you to everybody here for listening. And I'm sure we said thanks to Brandon already when we interviewed him. But thanks again to Brandon for coming on. Yeah, he came on again. Uh, It's great. We had a lot of fun the first time and we had more to talk about. So, Yeah. And Stephen, thank you for always doing this with me. I would not be the same without you. Would be really kind of depressing. Honestly, likewise. I I mean to say that once in a while and I, I don't know, I feel like it's implied, but it's worth making explicit. You know, to be straightforward, there's no way I'd have the motivation to do this. It's kind of like having a gym buddy, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. like accountability. If this was just me, I totally would have pod faded three years ago. So <laughs> you would have what? Pod faded. Pod faded. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's a real word, but 
no, it makes sense. Once you said, I'm like, oh, okay, I know what that is. Where the podcast just kind of less and less, and then they just stop altogether, and they never actually have a final signing off episode. Exactly. It's like ghosting for your parasocial relationships. <laughs> right. Anyway, thanks, True. buddy. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, too. See you next time. See ya. Thank you.